Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 51 for September 2015. I am your co-host the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host the second, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? Yay, I'm here. Yay. <laughs> I'm good, Quinn. How are you? I'm fantastic. Awesome. I'm uh, doing good, doing good. So uh, it's glad to be I'm glad to be back behind the microphone here. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's fun and and uh I I got an email from you a while back, well, recently actually, that you were saying how many hours you were working and and um so I'm I'm just grateful that you're here at all, actually, because <laughs> you're putting in a lot of hours, and not that not that that's a bad thing, but it can it tends to cut into stuff like this. So yay for Quinn showing up. <laughs> it does indeed. Yeah, we had a crazy deadline at work, which we are, as far as I know, clear of. Uh, and uh, so I have some reprieve here. And, oh good. Uh, good to have a little more time for retro computing goodness. All right. Well, we got a awesome interview lined up with Mike Westerfield. Is that right? Yeah, uh, he of the Byteworks. He uh, recently announced, with uh, along with Ken Gagne, that uh, Opus 2, the, the CD images that have basically everything that they've ever put out, um, and I think there's an option that also has the source code, um, are now available directly from Juice.js. So you can go buy those for a lot cheaper than you could previously. So uh, he's here to talk about that and some other stuff. Hi, this is Charles Mangan, and you're listening to Open Apple. All right, and joining us uh, today on Open Apple is uh, Mike Westerfield, uh, of course, uh, of the ByteWorks. Mike wrote uh, Orca M and Orca C, and has recently published a uh, republished, I guess. Well, I don't know if republished is a word, but made more easily available the collection, the fabulous collection of software and, and source code known as uh, Opus 2. Um, uh, and we'll get to the details of that in just a minute. But uh, first, hello, Mike. Hi, how are you doing, Mike? Doing well, thanks. Um, so uh, just real quick, I know you've told this story probably thousands of times already, but uh, could you give us a little background on how you got into Apple II and what led you to, to write languages that allowed other people to write on the Apple II? Well, um, actually, it started a really long time ago. I bought an Apple II in 1979, I guess it was. And uh, I decided I wanted to write a chess program. So I looked around, bought an assembler. It was tape-based, as it turned out. And one uh, tape had the editor and one tape had the assembler. And you read the editor in and typed in your stuff, read the assembler in with the cassette tape, assembled it and it crashed, then you read the editor back in. That didn't last very long, so I went out and bought that an assembler on a floppy disk. Oh, it was <laughs> awful, yes. So I bought a, a floppy disk, and I bought a floppy disk-based assembler and started working with that, and it was better, a little. <laughs> so um, I, you know, I was actually uh, in a course in the Air Force at the time, uh, or just finished one, and my instructor there says, well, why don't you just write an assembler? You know, I'd take the summer and do it, and it Okay, can't be that hard, right? <laughs> so, yeah, two years later, you know, I, I finished work at M. Um, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to put something like you found on a mainframe on a desktop computer. So, I basically implemented the assembler I knew, which was the one off of the IBM 360. So, it had a linker and an editor and a shell and the whole nine yards. 
which was a pretty big deal back in 1980, late 80 or 81 when it finally came out. Um, but anyway, that's how I got into languages, and I kind of discovered that I liked doing it, so I kept on doing it. So then uh, how, how, how did the transition go from 8-bit to 16-bit? I think uh, a lot of our listeners probably know, you know your products mainly from the uh, 2GS. Yeah, so um, that was actually kind of fun. I was working with a publishing company called Hayden Software at the time, and you may have run into a guy named David Eyes, um, who was actually my, uh, what was he, my editor or whatever? I, I'm not sure if you, that's really appropriate for software, but that's what he would have been in a publishing company. So he was uh, there at Hayden Software and got to talking with this other fellow down in Arizona who was building this new chip called a 65816. And so uh, David and I hopped on a plane and went down to Arizona um, to uh, talk to the fellow, and, and we talked for a while. And gosh, I'm trying to remember his name, Bill something or the other. Um, Bill Minch? Bill Minch, thank you. Yeah, it's been a long time. Anyway, um, yeah, I had the pleasure of watching one of his kids run out of the bedroom and tear around the pool naked. And uh, <laughs> anyway, we sat down and talked to him for a while, and we decided that, uh, or he decided that he would let me design the assembly language syntax for the 65816 and give us some of the first chips that came off the line, the 65 CO2s, which would go in an old 8-bit computer. And so we uh, got that going and uh, had a 65816 version of ORCA-M on the 8-bit Apple II pretty quickly. So when Apple came along and was doing the Apple II GS, they were looking around for an assembler, and they realized that pretty much all of the assemblers written for the 8-bit Apple II weren't going to work because they were written for a fixed architecture where they assumed that they were going to be assembling for a fixed location in RAM, and that just didn't work very well on a machine that had all that memory. I mean, you could actually order the machine with a whole megabyte, and with that much memory, you needed to have relocatable code, and here was Orca-M sitting there with um, an assembler and a linker, and an object module format that lent itself to doing relocatable code, and so they adopted that. And the Apple IIGS uh, object module format that's actually used for all the programs that load in is actually an adaptation, uh, slightly extended, to handle a few new things, of the one that we were using in the 8-bit version of Orca-M from day one. So they picked it up and decided to publish it, Oddly, they didn't think too much of their own publishing arm, so uh, they gave me a sweetheart of a deal. They actually uh, contracted with me to write the Apple IIGS version and uh, turned me loose with that. But they also said that although they would publish it as APW, um, I could still publish it as ORCA-M, and in fact they encouraged me to do that because they didn't think that they would be getting their version into retail channels very well. Not that I did much better, but anyway, I was able to actually publish it both ways. So we had two products, essentially the same product, uh, one shipping from Apple and one shipping from us, uh, which was a pretty nice deal for you know a little startup company like mine at the time. That is a good deal. I actually had no idea they were the same assembler. That's that's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it, if you got them in exactly the same revision, you could swap out components just fine. And, for example, APWC runs fine under ORCA-M. So then uh, what uh, prompted the move from uh, assembly into C compilers? Because that's uh, a pretty big jump in complexity. 
uh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> in some ways it is, and in some ways it's not. But actually, I made the jump to Pascal compilers a lot sooner than I made the jump to C compilers. <laughs> so um, when I was looking around, C was, yeah, it was all right. But it, it really, I didn't like it that much, frankly. And I really did like Pascal, so I actually started working on a Pascal compiler first. And I cut my teeth uh, with the P4 compiler, which Nicholas Worth wrote. And um, basically, that was a Pascal compiler written in Pascal. So I learned compiler writing from uh, moving that compiler over and porting it. And then I implemented that on the uh, Apple II GS and took the ISO Pascal standard and started extending it incrementally until I had a compiler that would do full ISO Pascal. And once that was done, uh, we were making... You know, pretty good little company around languages, and the next obvious choice was C. So I wrote Orca C um, in Pascal, of course, because Pascal is a better language for writing compilers than C is. <laughs> uh, so Orca C is written in, in Pascal, and to this day, I think it's a better language for writing compilers. Although uh, a lot of the interpreters I wrote were written in C. Hmm. That's really interesting. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit about you know, I mean. I think a lot of sort of entry level, if you will, um, assembly language programmers could handle writing, you know, an assembler and disassembler. Uh, but to get a compiler up and going, especially on the 6502, you really need to start handling things like stack frames and, and you know, call, call stacks and things like that. Can you talk a bit about how you managed some of those problems, you know, in an architecture that was just never intended for it, you know, having to mess with the zero page and, you know, coming up with an argument passing scheme and things like that? Well, actually, I didn't do it on the 8-bit Apple II. Uh, both Pascal and C compilers are 65.816 only. So oh, okay. we had uh, what, for the day, was a, a pretty generous stack of nearly 64K. It wasn't quite 64K because of the architecture of the Apple II itself, but it was big. Um, and we had a reasonable amount of memory to work in. So the, the compilers actually were written just like you would write them on pretty much any other machine. Uh, and they used the, you know, well, I mean, they were written in Pascal, so Pascal has stack frames and so forth. It handles recursion very nicely, so it really wasn't that big of a strain. Um, I think that probably if somebody was really trying to get ready to write a compiler, uh, a good place to start would be to go back and find that P4 compiler. It's still a very, very elegant uh, example of a compiler that compiles itself, and you basically take the P-code machine that was written for that compiler and implement that in C or whatever and compile the source code with itself and off you're going. Okay, cool. So, I mean, uh, compiler writing is a bit of a bit of a niche, you know, area of programming. It's, it's not something that a lot of engineers like, you know, the compiler course is usually the one everyone hates in school. Uh, you know, wh where did you sort of find your, your love for that? I was really started with the assembler, and uh, language translation in general uh, is something that interested me a lot once I got into the assembler and figured out what it was all about. Uh, and, you know, actually the assembler was relatively complicated because of the macro language and the fact that, yeah, I really did have to put it onto a, a fairly small machine. So in some ways the compiler was actually not as hard, frankly, as the assembler. Um, Less of a learning curve for me because I already had sort of an idea of what was going on with languages. And, um, you know, the assembler was written in assembly language. That takes a little longer than writing a compiler uh, in a high-level language. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> did you, uh, what did you actually write 
the assembler in? I mean, did you use the assembler that you had bought off the shelf, or you weren't hand assembling it, were you? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> As it turned out, that assembler that I had bought uh, that actually did sort of work uh, was capable of assembling code to two different locations. And um, what I did with it is I started writing Orca M and I ran out of space because it would only assemble, I forget what it was, but let's just say it was 12K worth of stuff and Orca got to be bigger than 12k so I started building it in two pieces one at the uh, the first location it would assemble at and the other at the other location it would assemble at with jumps in between if you can believe it uh, and and kept going assembling it in two pieces and I ran out of space again well it wouldn't assemble to a third location so that's when I sat down literally with pencil and paper and started writing out machine code and typing it in by hand to finish off the first version of Orca M and the very first thing I did with the first version of Orca M is I rewrote it in itself and reassembled it. And from then on, it was written in itself. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I love every part of that story. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I, I mean, I, I cringe at thinking of doing things like that these days, but uh, back then it was just all good fun. <laughs> Aside from, from Orca C and Orca M and, and Pascal, were, were there... I, I can't remember off the top of my head, were there any other products that, that ByteWorks uh, made and sold? Oh, a ton, yeah. Um, we actually published a Modula 2 compiler that was written by a guy in Australia, a very nice little job. Um, there was an integer basic compiler, believe it or not, uh, which there was a reason for that. The integer basic compiler was designed to show people how to put compilers on the Orca environment. And it was a very, very simple compiler that even back then, the very first release I sent out the source code for and said, all right, here's how it's done. If you want to put a compiler on, go for it. Uh, and unfortunately, nobody ever really did. Then towards uh, the end of the Apple 2GS days, I also implemented interpreters for uh, Logo and for BASIC. Um, BASIC we'll probably get into in a minute here, but the Logo was kind of fun. Uh, I actually did that for Roger Wagner, who was you know, started out being a, a competitor and ended up being a partner for many years uh, and the reason that I did that was we were going to put the logo on Hyper Studio as a scripting language but it was also released as a standalone language on the Apple IIGS and it was kind of fun because uh, instead of you know I started implementing this logo and I'm working along at it and I say okay turtle commands fine you know turn left turn right go forward all this kind of stuff had a really you know logo is a lot better than people give it credit for it's really Logo is to Lisp what uh, Basic is to Fortran, really. It's it's a small version of Lisp, and you can do all the Lisp processing stuff that you do in Lisp, and it's really cool. But I was looking at the turtle going, okay, turn left, turn right, uh, boring. Rotate up, rotate down, rotate left, rotate right, you know, roll left, roll right, and pretty soon I had a 3D turtle going, and we were uh, actually drawing uh, 3D shapes on the screen. But rather than just have them be flat projections, I uh, did, you know, one side red, one side blue, and you wore the funky little red-blue glasses, and you could actually see the shapes in three dimensions. And it was really kind of fun. I mean, I'd, this was intended for schools, of course, so we took it into the schools, and we had these kids playing with Logo. The teachers would come over and look at it and stare at it a bit, and finally, after a couple of minutes, they might kind of reach out and, you know sort of get a feel for the idea that it was 3D, but they were obviously having trouble with this. You set a third grader in front of this and you drew a 3D shape 
and the eyes got so big and they would literally reach out and try to grab the shape from in front of the screen because <laughs> they didn't really grasp the idea that it was just a, a you know a, a mirage if you will um, but anyway i had a lot of fun with uh, with 3d logo well that's cool i'd had no idea such a thing existed <laughs> yeah well it, it, it's on the opus cd so give it a, a, a try yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you said that about logo. It really is an underappreciated language. It's it's quite wonderful. I used it a lot uh, back in the '80s, and in fact, at this year's uh, Kansas Fest, Peter Neubauer gave a really great uh, session about uh, logo, just the history of it, and you know where it is today. And there are still some modern implementations of it, but uh, it doesn't have quite the the cachet that it, it once did. It was sort of the the darling of of uh, language academics there for a little while. Yeah, there's a, a a really cool version out there that I still like to play with occasionally. And I'm trying to remember the name of it, but um, it basically is set up to do emergent systems. So uh, things like the slime mold problem or ant farms or flocking birds. And mm. it's designed from the ground up to do that sort of a thing. It's really very cool. Cool. Yeah, the, my favorite Apple II version of Logo was uh, a later version called Logo Writer that didn't really get a lot of attention. You know, Apple's uh, sort of initial versions of Logo got all the got all the attention but uh, yeah, Logo Writer actually had uh, fonts and it actually had a sprite system and background tile rendering. And so you could actually make little games with it and stuff. It was actually really cool. <laughs> yeah. You guys are making me want to go go uh, boot up my Logo disc and, and play again. <laughs> well, it is a lot of fun. Now, and then from, from there you went, uh, you said you went to, to, to Basic next? Is that? I did, yeah. So uh, Basic actually has a, a pretty neat history, of course. Started off there uh, on the Apple II GS and implemented GSoft Basic, and that's still out there. It's still being uh, marketed, so you can go out and, and get a copy. There's a free version, and there's another version on the Opus CD, uh, and the source code's there if you want to play with it a little bit. But it turned out that Basic has had a longer life than any of the other languages I did on the Apple II GS for a variety of reasons. Um, I don't know if you really kept up with Hyper Studio, but Hyper Studio uh, was eventually sold to a company called Havas, and uh, they diddled around with it for a while and pretty much let it flop because they didn't really understand what they had, I don't think. I mean, Roger really knew what it was and how to market it. Havas was a big education company and honestly didn't. Um, so it died, and as it turned out, Roger's brother and... Uh, his sister-in-law and another guy uh, had gone off and started a company called Tech for Learning. And these guys started off with a box of clay and a, a, a very simple little movie program and actually built a company around this. And I thought, my gosh, if they can do that, they can sell anything. So I'm going to actually write uh, a new program. And uh, I did. I, I wrote a program called that was eventually called Media Blender. And they sold that for... Um, a couple of years. It did okay, but by then the schools were sort of turning away from that sort of thing. We needed a scripting language for Media Blender, and I dusted off BASIC. We talked about it uh, amongst ourselves and decided that um, that was the way to go for a scripting language. So I rewrote GSoft BASIC um, in uh, C. Uh, I was Java first. I'm sorry, C came later. In Java, and we put it out there on... Uh, as the scripting language for Media Blender on the Macintosh and the Windows platforms. So that did all right as a scripting language. Uh, later on, I ended up working for a company called Ares, 
And one, the project, the big project that I was on there was uh, a high-end simulation program, which was really kind of cool in, in and of itself. This program basically would take uh, a model of a site. So you'd go into a facility and you'd model where all the, the buildings were, where the doors were, the windows, um, how you know, how long it would take to break down a door, for example, where cameras were at, where guards would walk, what kind of guns they carried, um, it, any kind of sensors that they happened to have, and then you'd model an attacking force. Uh, you'd have um, people with, you know, RPGs or sniper rifles or whatever, and you'd model their tactics. Are they going to try to be stealthy? Are they just, just going to try to fight their way in or whatever? And then the program would run automatically, and choose different pathways automatically for these uh, attackers and run them in and see if they could take over the site. And this was used by a number of uh, both military and DOE facilities uh, to protect some pretty sensitive assets. But one of the things they eventually needed was a scripting language. And gosh, here's GSoft Basic translated to Java. The program was written in Java, so dusted it off and stuck it in there. And it was used for doing high-end military simulations. And then a few years later, I, I started writing Tech Basic. And one of the things people don't know about Basic, which is really kind of neat, is if you go back to the pre-desktop computer days, the pre-microcomputer days, Basic wasn't written as a simple little program to write simple programs on a desktop computer. It was written as a scientific programming language. And it had matrices, and you, you could assign one matrix to another, you could multiply them, uh, you could do vectors uh, as, as basic data types. Uh, so when I decided to write TechBasic, which was uh, envisioned as being a MATLAB on an iPad, I decided to use BASIC as the language because everybody thinks they know BASIC. Whether they do or not, they think they do, and that's half the battle with learning a new language, is thinking you can do it. So I put BASIC on there, only I implemented all those old commands and brought back the matrices and so forth. And that version is written in C. But it's still, fundamentally, when you get down and look at the logic, it's GSoft BASIC. That is interesting. Yeah, I think very few people know that about BASIC. I certainly didn't. Uh, I think, yeah, everyone's image of it, especially those of us that grew up with the microcomputers, uh, you know, our image of it is that it came from somewhere uh, as and it was created as a learning tool for, you know, for programming languages. Sure. Well, you know, B Bill Gates basically did it. Um, and when he was trying to squeeze it into little 8K ROMs, he took out a lot of stuff. And I don't blame him. It's, it's not a bad thing that he did that. But, of course, one of the first things to go was all the, the advanced mathematics. So out the window that went. And since all of the other basics that grew up afterwards were based on the original uh, Microsoft basics, in which AppleSoft was actually written by Microsoft, they... Uh, didn't have the, the math and didn't know about the math and didn't care about the math. And that's okay, except unless you really want the math, in which case you want to go back and grab all that stuff. It's very, very cool. That is really interesting. I was actually going to shift gears a little bit. And I'm curious, uh, going back to Orca M for, uh, for a minute, the uh, back at the time, there was a little bit of a, a rivalry between uh, on the 2GS between you know Merlin programmers and and others. Did you at the time have a sense of that rivalry, and you know was there a sense of competition between the assemblers at all? Um, there was a little bit, especially on the 8-bit Apple II. I mean, back there, Merlin came out a little bit before Orca. Um, it was a pretty decent assembler, to be honest. If Merlin had come out 
before I started writing Orca, there might not have ever been an Orca. Uh, and Merlin had one other good feature about it. It was very fast. It was designed to be um, to, to turn over the code in memory, uh, do everything pretty much like you would uh, expect on an 8-bit Apple II with you know non-relocating code and so forth, where Orca M was creating code that had to be uh, linked and, and that took longer. So as it turned out, people who were writing games and so forth, which is really most of what people wanted to do if they were amateurs and, uh, and a lot of professionals, of course, uh, then they would pick Merlin, and for good reason. If people were writing large applications, um, like WordPerfect, for example, uh, was written using Orca because it was a better platform for writing large organized programs that, could, that had to be assembled in, or could be assembled in separate pieces and organized that way. And using a linker, of course, was an advantage at that point. So, you know, they, they were, there was competition, but they were also very good at different things. We got to the Apple IIGS, Orca got there first because of uh, the, the arrangement with Bill Minch, because of the arrangement with Apple, it came out first. And um, although Merlin came along later and was fairly popular again with the game programmers, it never really quite caught up with uh, the APW-Orca combination, from what I could tell. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, at the time, I was never really clear what the differences were between the two assemblers. Uh, I had only ever used uh, Orca-M and Orca-C myself, but uh, I know that the, the demo scene programmers and so on would actually put little rants in their uh, in their demos about uh, how, <laughs> yeah. how great Merlin was and, and how much they disliked APW and so on. So I always thought that was interesting, sort of this weird sort of tribalism developed around Merlin. <laughs> Well, there were a lot of people that came over from the Apple II, uh, the 8-bit world to the Apple II GS also, and they were used to Merlin. They didn't want to learn a new assembler. They were offended by the idea that Apple didn't pick their assembler. Uh, <laughs> a few people at Apple were. So, you know, that happens. It happens today. So uh, one thing we haven't talked a lot about yet is Orca Shell. Can you talk a bit about that product and how that developed? Well, that was basically just a, um, you know, I needed a shell, and so I, I wrote it with the, you know, one eye towards uh, Unix and one eye towards uh, AppleSoft. I wanted something that was familiar for people who are coming from the Apple II DOS and later ProDOS world. Um, so I didn't rename a lot of the commands that they were already familiar with, but I also wanted to have something that was a little more powerful. And so I had a Unix book laying on my desk when I was writing the shell, and I was flipping through, you know, stealing ideas left and right uh, to, to put in there. And then later on, of course, there was a Unix shell developed, which actually worked with the uh, Orca language, uh, languages, and, and that was very cool too. So you had two shells that you could use. Yeah, is that uh, uh, the Gnome environment? you're thinking yeah there? yeah and it, it was very nice yeah it was actually i uh, actually booted my gs into orca shell for a while and then uh switched to to gno when that came out and uh, uh yeah it was uh so much nicer than than waiting for gsos to do anything frankly <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh, there, there was that it was also very you know a nice environment for people who knew unix or wanted to learn unix uh, because they had that right there on their uh, Apple II GS. I, I think it's a wonderful thing to, to have as an option. For sure, yeah. Yeah, and I was at the time I was doing all of my programming pretty much in Orca C on the 2GS, so the, the tight integration there was, was great. Now, you had mentioned um, that um, Roger Wagner had gone from 
competitor to friend. How did that happen? Um, actually, it was, I think, an Apple Fest that we were at. And uh, he started talking to me about uh, the compilers and so forth because he wanted some sort of a scripting language uh, for Hyper Studio. And they had something called SimpleScript that they had developed themselves. And they knew it was a stopgap. Uh, it wasn't really a full-blown language. Roger's vision was that I was going to put uh, all of the Orca languages on and people could just use C or Pascal or whatever the heck they wanted to use. And in fact, there was an interface developed that let you do that. So in the Apple II GS, uh, if you had Hyper Studio GS and the Orca languages, you could write uh, extensions for Hyper Studio in Orca C, for example. But you know, I talked in, into considering a, a scripting language that was developed specifically for um, scripting on his machines uh, with the idea that you know, C and Pascal and assembly language, although they were very cool for programmers, weren't really the kind of thing that non-programmers were going to get into easily. Uh, and for something like that, that you really wanted a language that was there in the schools. And of course, back then, if you walked into a fifth grade classroom somewhere in the United States and asked them what languages they knew, if they knew anything at all, they knew Logo. So uh, after some discussions back and forth, we decided Logo was the right language, and we went ahead and implemented a language specifically for scripting, and that's the one that got carried over to the Macintosh and later Windows. Okay. It's all, it's all much more simple than I imagined. I imagine you two sitting down in a dark room and threatening to destroy each other before. <laughs> <laughs> no. no right. Even when we were competitors, I mean, yeah, we would compete, but we talked to each other and we had some... Uh, we, we had some possibilities that, that went on a few times beforehand. Uh, there, there was actually a switcher I developed for the uh, Apple IIGS, for example, back before, well, it was fairly soon after the Apple IIGS came out. And uh, I went to Apple with the switcher and talked to one of their evangelists who told me that that's not what the Apple IIGS was for, that they would not support it, that they would not help promote it, that they would not even acknowledge its existence because switchers were for the Macintosh, not for the Apple IIGS. Wow. I was like, really? <laughs> but it works. <laughs> so, um, so actually, Roger had a product that wasn't a switcher, but was similar in concept where you could uh, use some of the if you remember some of the funky Apple IIGS escape keys and you could flip around and flip into a new environment. And I didn't think I could market it very well. And I went to him and we talked it over for a while. He ended up not marketing it. I ended up not marketing it or releasing it. Um, but uh, yeah, we'd, we'd already established somewhat of a relationship from that. Sounds like uh, it was mutually beneficial. Well, it could have been, but I, I, you know, in some ways I guess Apple was right. Switchers weren't going to come out on the Apple IIGS. Did, did you ever release that switcher yourself? or No, I didn't. I uh, I don't know what. I, I don't even remember if I put it on Opus. It's still around somewhere, though. I'm sure it wouldn't work with any of the more recent versions of uh, GSOS, but if you went back to the version that was available when I wrote it, it, it did work just fine. Yeah, there was, there was one switcher that came out towards the end of the machine's run. I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Feel like it had. I think the the icon was a frog, but I don't remember much else about it other than 
It was incredibly unstable, as you might imagine, <laughs> but it was one of those things. It was sort of a neat that it worked at all, uh, but wasn't terribly useful just because of the instability. Now, at uh, at what point did um, did all of this sort of filter onto into into Opus? How was how was Opus two born? Well, the Apple two GS was um, obviously on its way out. I mean, Apple had stopped producing them, um, and I was not actively doing all that much anymore as I started to move to other places where I could make a living. And I wanted to basically um, have sort of a swan song, if you will, um, make the products available in a form that they could be available for many, many years and uh, get the source code out there so that if somebody really wanted to learn from it or dink with it, that they would have that available. So... Pretty much the last thing I did for the Apple IIs was to put together the app, the uh, Opus 2 discs. So there's two of them. Um, Opus the software has pretty much every piece of software that uh, would still run on an Apple II GS or an 8-bit Apple II at that point. Uh, and a few that maybe won't, I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> Some of the really old ones, I, I admit, I just put them on there because I still had them. Um, and then the uh, the... The source CD has all of the source code for the programs that were written at the ByteWorks, which by and large were programs that I wrote. I had a couple of people working for me at one point, and uh, Phil Montoya in particular wrote an awful lot of the, uh, about half of the shell, and he did a, uh, some work on the assembler. Uh, he wrote the uh, first version of one of the linkers, so uh, he did a fair amount of work, and his work is captured there too. Um, but... It's the source code for every program that I had the rights to put the source code for on there. And those two CDs are still available and uh, have recently been re-released through a new venue. Um, so if you are familiar with Juice GS, the magazine, uh, he has the rights now to uh, sell those CDs uh, electronically, which uh, originally they were, of course, physical CDs. And uh, for a, a much, much reduced price so that we could get it out there and still make it worth his while to actually handle the things. Uh, so there they are. And we're talking about other things as well. The source code eventually will probably be available um, through uh, online repositories, uh, GitHub or something like it. I tried doing that once a few weeks ago and just got tangled up in my lack of, of knowledge of some of the licensing issues and backed off, um, but I'll take another swing at that when I get a little bit of time to to do it right. Cool. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask about that. The uh, the the brief moment when uh, the Orca C source was uh, was on GitHub there. Um, yeah, hopefully uh, you can find a way to to make that work with the licensing because GitHub is is a really great tool for that. Yeah, I, I at the time especially, I really wasn't quite ready to let go of the idea of. Uh, controlling the distribution and since then I've been thinking about it going why you know who really cares and I, I think maintaining the copyright and allowing distribution is probably going to work and uh, the forking and so forth that people want to do is fine what I was really envisioning is having a central place where people could go to uh, the ByteWorks GitHub account and be sure they were finding the latest versions of all of the software so the idea of forking it and putting it off somewhere else where somebody had a specialized version really didn't sit well with me because I thought we would lose focus as a community on 
a single place to go and um, get the source. But I guess I just need to, you know, get with this century and, and uh, let it happen. And that's pretty much what's going to happen when I finally get some time to put it up. Yeah, that's a valid concern. Uh, I think uh, I think if you make it clear in you know in the README on GitHub, you know that uh, this is the one true you know source, and anywhere else that you find it, it's not the one true. And I think there's some licensing uh, terms you can put in to make sure that people still point back to yours if they fork it and and modify it and so on. But uh, honestly, I suspect with a, a product like this, you'll probably find that most people just really want to see the source and won't necessarily you know uh, make a million versions of it and you know, populate the world with it. Uh, I think most people will just be thrilled to sort of be able to grab the source and and, uh, and play with it. Well, there, there's actually um, quite a few bug fixes that have been made, for example, to Orca C. Uh, I'll, although I haven't seen them, I, I understand somebody has some uh, bug fixes for Orca M uh, and the shell. So eventually, what I plan to do is to put things up as people say they've got changes for it. So if nobody comes along and says they have a change for 3D Logo, then the source won't go up in the repository. But if they come along and say they do, then I'll put the source up. Um, and actually, Becky Heineman has expressed some interest in taking uh, Orca C in particular and converting it to C++ uh, to use as a uh, cross-compiler uh, for uh, 65B16 projects on various assorted computers. So... You know, that's one that legitimately may be forked. Maybe it'll end up on, in the ByteWorks area. Maybe um, she'll go off and do it in her own area. Whatever. Um, but mostly I just you know, I, I, I just started a new job a couple of weeks ago, and I, I just need to find some time when I can sit down and, and do all of this stuff, and, and eventually it'll happen. Cool. Yeah, that, that would be really nifty. Yeah, the nice thing about GitHub is their pull request model. So, you know, if somebody wants to fix a bug or whatever, they can – uh, create their own branch, fix the bug, and then uh, push it back to you as kind of a suggestion. Like, here's the changes I think you should make, and then you can choose to pull those into the main branch, uh, you know, as you see fit. And then there's comment threads that you can have on that on that code and review their changes and so on. So it's very kind of a a nice uh, structure that it forces onto uh, the the idea of open source. Because yeah, otherwise it can get pretty crazy pretty fast. Um, but so it allows you to maintain control of those source code changes. And I'm not sure I even want to maintain control uh, personally. It's just I want a central place where people can go and get things. Um, so if you want to volunteer, I'm going to be looking for somebody to actually manage the, the polls and so forth and, and get all that working. The main thing that I think uh, will be an advantage is there is a test suite for Orca C and for Orca M and for Orca Pascal. And I think uh, if we just make sure that people run the test suite before they upload a new version, and if the test suite needs to be changed, you know, modify that as well as they upload the versions, then we'll continue to have a, a reasonably stable uh, platform as things move forward. That sounds great. So the Opus 2 CDs that you can get right now are the software, and there's another one with the source, and they're each $25. You can get them from juice.gs's uh, online store, and we'll have a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, and uh, thanks to, to Ken Gagne, of course, for uh, arranging to uh, get something going with that. I know that he's not typically been a you know a, a retail outlet, uh, if you will, but uh, he's kind of branched out into that just to make sure that people can uh, get access to this uh, great material. Well, in, in truth, he made it work. Um, and the reason is very simple. I lack time. He donated his time to get this thing up and going, which is one of the reasons why uh, there's still a charge on it. I wanted to make a little money off of it. And I wouldn't mind making some money, but... 
uh, you know, give him his due. He's put a lot of work into it and deserves to get some money from those sales. Well, he'll definitely be getting my money. All right. Well, um, Quinn, do you have anything else? Uh, nope. That's uh, all the questions I had. This has been great. Yeah, Mike, did you have anything that uh, um, you think maybe we should have asked you about and didn't? Uh, well, gosh, yeah. It, it, you know, I'll just put in a, a shameless plug as well. Uh, if you are interested in BASIC at all, and I know a lot of uh, Apple II people still have fond memories of that language, give TechBASIC a look. It's on uh, iOS, on both the iPad and the iPhone, and it lets you program your device without having to involve a Macintosh or whatever. And you can do a lot of connectivity things. It's a lot of fun because you can go out there and connect to Bluetooth devices. Uh, you can connect to uh, Wi-Fi devices. You can use the sensors that are built into the machine, the accelerometers and so forth. Uh, it's, it's just a barrel of fun. And, you know, for, for 15 bucks, you know, you ought to give it a try. And you can actually uh, download the free version and, and see what's involved uh, in using it without spending any money at all. So uh, by all means, give that a try. And if you're rocket fanatics, I just finished a rocket book uh, last year, uh, Make Rockets, which is a ton of fun to write. I hope other people uh, enjoy it. And I'm working on high-power rockets. So keep an eye out for that. Awesome. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes as well. Oh, I, gee, I forgot my other book. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it it's actually has lots of basic code. It's written in Tech Basic, And it shows you how to do things on the iPad and the iPhone. Uh, building iPhone and iPad electronic projects from O'Reilly. And uh, you can pick that one up as well. And you can do things like from your iPhone, control a, you know, hack a uh, Radio Shack uh, car so that you can tilt your iPhone to control a radio control car running around the floor. And you do that with an Arduino hooked up to a Bluetooth bridge going back to your iPhone. And it's a real Rube Goldberg thing, and it's just tons of fun. <laughs> Very cool. All right, Mike. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Well, thanks for having me. And if you find something else you want to talk about someday, give me a buzz. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, Mike, for joining us here in the studio. That was great. And uh, let's see. we got lots of awesome news here to talk about, Mike. So let's roll into that. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. So this first uh, item is one of yours, I believe, yeah, from uh, MIT? Yeah, this is the uh, MIT Technology Review, which is uh, just a great read anyway, if you're looking for technology-related blog stuff from smart people. Uh, but they had a, a great article called uh, Tech's Enduring Great Man Myth. And uh, I thought it was I thought it was really well done. It's written by Amanda Schaffer, Schaefer, and, uh, and it talks about how um, there's not, you know, everything that we do and see and have today kind of comes from people building on the work of other people. And that tends to get lost a lot. Um, I think in, you know, in places like Silicon Valley, especially where, you know, you've got, uh, Elon Musk, who's standing, you know, with his arms folded on Newsweek magazine covers, looking down at you and, and, um, you know, especially Steve Jobs and, and his um, mythology around uh, his rebuilding of Apple. And even even um, the, the great Waz, who we, we love and adore here, uh, sometimes will, when he talks, he will talk about how, you know, I did this and I came up with that. And, and it's easy to forget sometimes that, that well, you, you did some great stuff, but it's, we, we forget sometimes that, that 
you know, the, the innovation wasn't um, a lot of the, well, all of the innovation, I guess, that we, we have today isn't uh, isn't a lone man or, or person coming up with, with this. And I know this has nothing really to do with Apple, too, other than, than the, it just struck me as a, an interesting article. Yeah, I'm actually glad that you included this because it is a great article. And uh, we've talked about this a bit on the show in the past because, uh, yeah, this is especially prevalent with Steve Jobs, you know, having recently passed away and how immediately, you know, he was sort of canonized uh, in popular culture. Uh, and, uh, of course, we tend to do the same with Waz here on the show and within the Apple II community. But, yeah, it's you have to remember that these uh, these people are always standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's almost uh, never, you know, all, all great products come from large teams of people for the most part. Uh, and uh, or at the very least, uh, people who uh, learned what they know from working with other smart people. You know, Waz learned, you know, much of what he knew from uh, the Homebrew Computer Club and from working at HP. And so, so he applied that knowledge in a new and interesting way with the Apple II but uh, yeah, he's certainly standing on the shoulders of giants. And well, really, with the Apple One, uh, you know, the Apple Two was certainly the product of a you know a larger team of people. You know, there was industrial designers involved, and uh, you know, copywriters and technical writers involved, and uh, other other types of engineering and marketing people. And you know, so these yeah these things don't come out of the uh, the, the yeah, product of one person's head. Uh, this is I think pretty prevalent in American culture in particular. You know, Americans uh, seem to love the uh, the the lone genius uh, uh, mythos. You know, you see this with like Thomas Edison. You know, who really just actually was uh, a businessman and he ran a lab that hired engineers to do stuff, and uh, that lab is what produced all the things that we then credit to Thomas Edison. But he was sort of the Steve Jobs of his era. He was just the uh, the dashing figurehead uh, in front of a large group of smart, hardworking people. The design of the Apple II itself is was um, it was created to to be made not cheaply but inexpensively from you know off the shelf parts, and those those parts were designed and created by other people before before Apple got to them. So you know it's it's all sort of building uh, one wave on the next. It's not, um, and it, yeah, it, it's easy to get lost in that. Um, the the reality distortion field a little bit I think yeah I think so and and Waz has talked about that too and sometimes he has uh, you know moments of more uh, uh, humility where he said you know all he was really doing was putting together these VLSI chips that were designed to go together for the most part uh, and then you know applying sort of a layer of his own cleverness on top of that you know the, the, there are definite definite moments of brilliance in the Apple II not to to sell him short you know the way that he refreshed DRAM. Uh, and, you know, generated the video and everything was really quite brilliant. That you know, Nobody had done that before. So there's certainly moments of genius in there. But, uh, yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants for sure. All right. Well, Apple always says they are never going to uh, make a museum because they look forward and never backward. Unless but, it's uh, the Mac and it's uh, the 30th birthday and then we'll throw a big <laughs> <yes>. party. <laughs> That's right. And maybe we'll make special editions and <laughs> other things. But otherwise, we don't talk That's about right. the past. Uh, but it looks like the Italians are going their own way. This is a museum that was launched or, or conceived, I guess, about five years ago, uh, and it's um, put together under an Italian nonprofit organization called All About Apple, uh, and they've been sort of they've been trying to figure out how to pay for it and and where to put it for I guess about five years now, and it's got they've got nine, like nine thousand pieces it, it says here in this article in in their collection, so definitely a, a huge collection of of stuff. Uh, but it looks like this is finally going to be going live here probably in the next month or two. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful looking collection. If, uh, if there's anyone from Stanford uh, listening, uh, by all means, uh, look at these pictures. This is how the proper way to display vintage Apple II hardware, uh, not the sad little display they currently have in the Bill <laughs> Gates Computer Science Building, as I've talked uh-huh. about on a previous show. Uh, but yeah, it's a really nice display. I see there's even an Apple III there. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's interesting. You know, sometimes museums have those interactive displays. So uh, mm-hmm. it looks like there's actually like a button you can push on the front of the glass case and it'll lift that Apple III up and, and drop it three inches. Ah, cool. funny, funny. <laughs> uh, I kid, I kid. You kid, yes. It's, <laughs> they, it's, they claim to have uh, Steve Wozniak's original toolbox, which I don't know how interesting that is, but... Um, <laughs> It's there if you want to see it. So uh, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm looking at the, the article on uh, machistory.net right now, and I don't see a specific launch date yet, but uh, there's another article that I don't have in front of me that said uh, September, October. So it should be soon. And if you're over in that area or you happen to be traveling through there, uh, we'd love to hear about it if you stop in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just just think those tools probably have actual Steve Wozniak sweat molecules on them. <laughs> oh, no. Amazing. It'll be like Sheldon in the the napkin with uh, with uh, <laughs> yes. Leonard Nimoy's DNA on it, right? We'll that, just be cloning right. cloning wazes. That's right. We could we could make a new waz. <laughs> oh no! Uh, all right. So moving right along, uh, you know, uh, since we like to look backwards uh, here on the show, it's kind of what we're all about. <laughs> Uh, I'm always amazed when we can look backwards and find something new. It looks like a, a new ending to a classic Apple II game has been discovered. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit dumbfounded by this. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked. Um, this is a, a post that I originally saw on, or that I saw on uh, Call Apple. I'm sure it's been it's made the rounds by now, but uh, it looks like Antoine Vigneault has discovered the missing B-side ending for the Apple II game Lady Tut, which is uh, looks like kind of a um, distant cousin to it's a, a maze chase distant cousin to pac-man sort of a game it was originally published back in 1983 and apparently this is the first time the ending has been seen in the wild since then uh, yeah I, gosh i mean the video is really interesting to watch um you know i never finished that game i didn't even know you really could finish it uh it's quite challenging but it's a it's a classic i really really I enjoyed that game, but it's one of those games where, I mean, the actual binary was quite small, and so it would always be on a collection of, you know, 10 other games that you got from some illicit source, and uh, so this sounds like this is maybe only something that, so this is maybe something that didn't make it into the pirated copies just because of the size of it. Uh, it's quite an elaborate, uh, you know, display uh, that, uh, that comes up here, so uh, do you know, is this uh, the actual ending that just isn't in the pirated versions or is this an alternate ending or is this something that maybe wasn't in the game and Antoine just found it you know not on the disc but isn't referenced in the code or something I am not sure on the details on that uh, the um, the only de- the only thing that the call Apple article mentions is that uh, you know the game's been cracked a bunch of times over the years but for whatever reason they didn't get this bit of code so I, I would assume that it was either something that that wasn't that was put on the disc and not used because if it was part of the code and you didn't get that, then wouldn't it crash at some point when it tried to, to call those, those bits that are missing? Yeah, that's a good question. They may have patched that. I mean, something that, uh, you know, a lot of the copy protection schemes, I don't, uh, I don't know what was used in Lady Tut, but a lot of these schemes uh, involved putting more data on the disc than uh, normally an Apple II disc would, would support, you know, through the, uh, addition of uh, extra, you know, secret sectors or different ways of remapping the bitstream to squeeze more data in there. 
And uh, so sometimes when these games are pirated, they the pirate would cut stuff out to sort of make it fit on a standard layout, uh, Apple II floppy. And so maybe, yeah, they found this big, elaborate, you know, graphical display, which surely would have taken a lot of space on the disk. Maybe they just cut it out and then patched the code to not try to use it or something. Who hmm. knows? Because, uh, yeah, I mean, like I say, yeah, Lady Tut was pretty small binary. And uh, uh, so I could see that maybe they realized that without this ending, the game was you know, a fifth of the size or something, so maybe they just <laughs> cut it out for that reason. But, uh, yeah, very cool. Uh, you just you never you never expect to see something so new uh, in something so old. Yeah, it was years before I even knew about the, um, you know, the, if you had the original Karateka Karateka disc and you flipped it over to the back side, the game came up upside down. And even when I heard about it, it was still like, I don't know if that's true or if somebody, some kid just made that up and it's been floating around. Um, you know, and this is, again, this is a, an advantage of, I suppose, buying, buying the original disc and having this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's a legendary thing, I think in the Apple II. And yeah, I remember hearing that back at the time and just totally not believing it like that. Just, yeah, it's got, that has urban legend written all over right. it. But, uh, I finally encountered a, a commercial copy of the game one day and sure enough, <laughs> you boot the backside of that disc and it plays the game upside down. It's, it is utterly fantastic. It's gotta be one of the best Easter eggs and honestly, in the history of computer gaming. Yep, and because it's not, it wasn't documented anywhere, and never asked you to turn the disc over or anything like that. You know, the the pirates just captured side one, and that's what you got when you maybe got a not so legal copy from your friend. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine. I wonder who found that the first time. It must have just made their brain explode. Yeah. I kind of can't even imagine <laughs> that what what how, what my reaction to that would be. Well, uh, from the very old, uh, we go to the very new. Uh, everyone's favorite Bulgarian hacker uh, has been very busy, as we've talked about. We love talking about Plamen's products here. And it looks like he's finally uh, opening his own store. He has been selling things on eBay, primarily. He's got a little storefront there, uh, which we've linked to many times. And uh, But now he's launching uh, a site called a2heaven.com. And uh, I presume you'll be able to go there and buy all of his stuff in one nice place. It's uh, currently uh, in sort of a coming soon mode as of this recording, but we will definitely link to it in the show notes. And hopefully by the time this show goes out, uh, it will be up and running. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, me too. Uh, and in fact, even the even the uh, little teaser screen that he's got up right now is where dreams come true. And I, <laughs> I can't wait. Hurry up, Plumman. I want to buy stuff. Yeah, it's hard, hard to argue with that characterization. His products are really awesome. He's really, I mean, he's really filling the void that Nishida Radio left with uh, with his retirement. You know, he's making a lot of kind of similar sorts of solutions to uh, Apple II problems in the modern world, uh, mostly relating to storage and video and so on. Uh, and he's, yeah, replicating some great old applied engineering products. And, uh, you know, like we talked about last month. So very excited, very excited to give him more of my money. That's right. And in fact, uh, we'll be talking about that later in the, the errors and corrections section of the show. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, it could be a long section. <laughs> That's why we just don't bother most months. All right. Um, so one of my favorite hackers, uh, kind of unrelated to the Apple II, is a fellow named Dave Jones. And uh, he's uh, a very excitable Australian uh, and uh, an awesome, awesome electrical engineer. And he has a series of, uh, he's got a sort of a video uh blog called the EEV blog. Uh, anyone who's sort of messed with electronics has no doubt encountered Dave Jones's blog and a video series before. He's really, uh, really fun to watch. He does all kinds of stuff. And every so often he intersects with our beloved hobby as he has done this time where he tears down an Apple IIc. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, uh, kind of 
coming from the perspective of someone who wasn't necessarily into these computers at the time, so he's coming at it from just kind of a fresh eye. And uh, but he, being the consummate electrical engineer that he is, you know, he, he kind of goes over all the parts and uh, you know talks about the pluses and minuses of the way different things were done. And uh, he comes away pretty impressed with the uh, build quality and design of the Apple IIc. So that's good to see, and uh, definitely an enjoyable uh, watch. I recommend it. Yeah, we agree with you, uh, Dave. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so we've talked a lot in the past about the just endless amounts of Apple II clones that were out there at the time, uh, particularly Apple II Plus. Uh, that thing was just cloned like crazy. Mm, yeah. And, uh, you know, there used to be uh, one or more sites dedicated to uh, accumulating lists of these clones, uh, but those sites seem to be gone. Uh, if anyone knows of such a list, please let us know. But uh, yeah, there just seems to never be a shortage of new ones that turn up. And uh, on the uh, Facebook group recently, uh, a, a sort of a different Facebook group called The Vault of the Atomic Space Age. It's kind of a funny uh, sort of pop culture aggregator of, you know, if you're into that kind of 50s, you know, space age kind of when everyone thought cars were going to have rockets and nuclear reactors in them, you know, in the future, that kind of... Um, kind of vision of the future that was around for a while. Uh, if you're into that stuff, this Facebook group kind of aggregates that. And one of the things that came along was this Apple II clone uh, from uh, the Soviet Union called the Agat 4. And it's uh, it's a very strange looking thing. Uh, it has has a very unique industrial design. You got to look at these photos that will link Soviet to. era design. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely Soviet 50s design. Uh, it's quite large, and it has this kind of octagonal case, and it's bright orange, and, and it has the word, the name Agat in big, you know, Cyrillic letters right on the front. Uh, yeah, it's it's a beast, this thing. Uh, I would have no idea what it was if somebody had not posted it uh, in this thread that it is, in fact, an Apple II clone. Uh, so definitely worth a look. Yeah, and in fact, um, there's a, a large collection of disk images and, and documentation for this machine uh, uh, up on Asimov. Uh, it's all in Russian, um, so you know, I I couldn't make any sense of it. But I had never seen one of the, the actual machines before, so uh, it's always great to to, to come across um, new and interesting pieces of hardware. Well, relatively new and, and interesting pieces of hardware like that. Yeah, for sure. In fact, recently. Uh, on a recent show, we talked about a clone called the Unitron. Uh, we had a user who'd written in saying their first Apple II was was a Unitron, and I recently learned that uh, the, so the Unitron was a Brazilian clone, but there was actually uh, I forget now if it was uh, Russian or something else, but there was uh, I believe an Eastern European uh, clone of the Unitron uh, that was also <laughs> called Unitron, but it's different. Uh, and so it's sort of a reimagining of somebody else's clone, and <laughs> it's got different keyboard layout, and uh, it's got some neat features like an, uh, the disk two controller is integrated onto the motherboard, and so on. Uh, I'll try to find uh, pictures about that. I just saw them recently uh, online. So uh, yeah, I mean, you could, you could, someone, someone out there could build quite an amazing Apple II clone collection if you wanted to. If you're looking for something challenging and interesting to collect, I think Apple II clones would be a great option. Yep, and most of them came from uh, you know remote areas of, of Eastern Europe and South America, uh, where they were safely, safely uh, beyond the long arm of uh, U.S. copyright law. Yeah, and the uh, 
the relatively short at the time uh, legal arm of Apple. You know, at the right. time, still a relatively small company. So yeah, they weren't going to attempt to pursue legal action on some you know Ukrainian company that uh, had shamelessly dumped their ROM and <laughs> produced their own Apple II+. Plus. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's see. We haven't talked about KFest in 18 seconds or so, so uh, we're due. Uh, the, uh, uh, there was quite a large Atari contingent at this year's Kansas Fest, Buatari, and uh, what was, what's been cool about that is that uh, many of them are seeing the light and have spent significant portions of their own uh, Atari podcasts, Buatari, talking about Kansas Fest. So uh, I've collected a few of them here. They're all great shows, honestly, worth listening to anyway. Um, but uh, let's see, we've got uh, the Player Missile Podcast, we've got Inverse Tasky, and, uh, of course, Antic. Uh, Taking over, those man. Are, yeah, those are kind of the, I think those are kind of the big three right now in Atari Podcasts. I don't know, there's like 638 of them now, I think. I can't keep track of them all. But uh, they all took time out of their day to talk about Kansas Fest uh, because they don't have uh, their own show worth talking about. So thanks for that, uh, Atari people, Atari. Okay, moving right along. Uh, we got uh, Ethernet 2 news, is that right? Yeah, the Ethernet 2 is finally available uh, to order. Um, the There was a, a pre-order period where you could order the card for $10 less, but that has expired. Uh, and you can now get uh, you, can now, you can now get them for $69 a card plus $10 shipping to the U.S. Um, I don't know about the international shipping, but... Um, you can, and it looks like they're still available right now, uh, as of as of this recording. Of course, one will come out in December, so uh, by then it may be out. But uh, if you didn't want to pay for one, there was also a there was a, a contest hosted, I think, by maybe Call Apple's who put this on, uh, in in conjunction with uh, Glenn Jones over at uh, A2 Retro Systems, where you could you could win one by submitting uh, a retro Apple II photo contest and submitting to a submitting a, a photo to this uh, uh, retro Apple II photo contest. And the, the way it worked was you took a picture of your modern equipment, but you made it look like it was taken back in the day. That was, that was the, the, the twist, I guess, uh, at the, the end of the movie, the M. Night Shyamalan twist there. Um, so uh, that has also um, expired, but there's the, the, the photo galleries uh, of the submissions are, are up. And there's some cool shots in there. We'll have all that in the show notes. Yeah, what a great idea. Uh, gosh, good on you, Call Apple. <laughs> I love the idea of taking photos of retro equipment and then trying to make them look like uh, 80s sort of film photography. That's such a fun idea. Uh, so, yeah, what, that's that's really awesome. I guess for anyone who doesn't know, the Ethernet 2, of course, is a, an Ethernet uh, ah, yes. card for the Apple II. Uh, jog my memory, is that, does that work in the 8 bits as well as the, as the GS? It does, yeah. Um, okay. I, think, uh, I think on the... Um, on the eight bits, you you have to use Contiki. Um, okay. That that suite for for your your um, uh, network uh, talking back and forth going ons. Um, and uh, if you if you put it in your two uh, GS, which I think is probably where most people are going to put it, it, it works with uh, the, the TCP/IP stack, Marinetti, and uh, the Spectrum suite. So, uh, according to to Glenn, he's made some. Uh, some improvements in, in speed and, and, um, reducing parts on, on the card. But, um, if you, if it does run out, your don't worry, your, your old Ethernet card will work just fine. Cool. Well, and so you mentioned Contiki. So for anyone who doesn't know, Contiki is kind of a, a Unix like operating system designed for uh, really small systems. It's kind of a modern thing that people have written and it runs on all sorts of eight bit, uh, retro computers as well as some sort of modern, uh, small systems. 
But uh, I imagine the Ethernet 2 might work with uh, the new 8-bit TCP IP stack Marina. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I know, I know that um, um, David Finnegan over at uh, Mac GUI uh, was working on that. And uh, I, don't, I haven't seen any announcements from, from David lately about uh, the progress of that project. I know uh, when the last I heard, it was still sort of in, in a late beta phase. Uh, it looked like most everything was working. But I think you can you can download that now for free and and try it out. Cool. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to doing that one of these days. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we, I mentioned microcontrollers. Uh, speaking of which, something uh, if you're into if you're into those things, sort of uh, the modern retro computers, if you will, the uh, modern day equivalent small systems uh, are uh, microcontrollers, and I play with them a lot. And uh, one of the popular things to do with those is. Uh, use your Arduino, which is a common kind of development board built around a microcontroller. That's uh, a popular thing to take an Arduino and emulate an old microcomputer, an old retrocomputer. And uh, someone has done that for the Apple One. Uh, once again, this has been done uh, in the past, but someone has done it again with an Arduino, and uh, that is making the rounds. So we've got a link to a, a Hackaday article on that. Uh, always a good read. Uh, I will say go into the Hackaday comment threads at your own risk. Uh, they they are a bit of a troll pit. But uh, yes, I uh, personally I read the site religiously, but uh, just tend to steer clear of the comments. <laughs> it's uh, it's a good site, uh, but it does seem to attract a certain uh, type of uh, reader for some reason. Uh, all right, moving right along. It looks like we have some cider press news. Yeah, so the cider press for. Quite a while sat dormant at version like 3.0 B1 or something. Um, and for, for those who don't know, Cider Press is a, uh, a disk image management tool that runs on Windows or can be emulated through uh, on, on Macintosh through through Wine or um, or you can if you if you dual boot you can get to it that way. Um, and recently with the the release of Windows, well, I guess not so recently, but with Windows 7 came out, and now there's Windows uh, 10 or whatever that one's called. And um, So as Windows is moving forward, uh, some things are not working or or don't look right, and so uh, activity has begun again on um, improving and, and continuing to build cider press it's uh, currently we talked about a couple of the the beta releases uh, but now this is at version uh, 4.0.1 and it adds support for displaying high-res images compressed with uh, lz4fh uh, fixed handling of semicolons and merlin assembly source con source conversion and it fixed the fine feature in file viewer so not a lot of major stuff, but if you're if you're wanting to keep up, then uh, now's a good time to get it. Cool. Yeah, Ciderpress is such a great tool. It's uh, definitely the one thing that uh, makes us Mac users jealous. Yeah, it's weird that such a great tool would have come out on Windows and not Macintosh. But yeah, we're over on the Mac. We're still mostly stuck with uh, the no, not really supported anymore Apple Commander Java thing, <laughs> which uh, gets the job done barely. But uh, it's it's no Ciderpress. Yep, there's definitely some hoops you got to jump through on that side. Well, on the subject of uh, talking to our old stuff with our new stuff, uh, there's some exciting new stuff coming from those uh, fierce Frenchmen. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like Antoine and Olivier are busy with uh, more of their cross-development shenanigans. Is that right? I think this is actually uh, Olivier Goudard, who's different than the Olivier of 
of Brutal Deluxe. Ah, that would be Olivier Gogel, I believe. Yes, that's right. Sorry, guys. But the Guinart version of Olivier has announced that uh, <laughs> there's a new uh, visual studio language reference for the Merlin 32 assembler. Um, he announced that on Twitter. And uh, if, you're, if you're into uh, writing Merlin code uh, on your modern machines, then this is probably a great tool to have. It is actually, yeah. I want to talk a bit about more about this because it is so really quite awesome. So Visual Studio, of course, is the major development IDE for Windows platforms, and it uh, it has this uh, language service system basically where you can create packages that include like a compiler and source code highlighting and auto completion and all sort of modern IDE niceties. You can package those up and stick them into Visual Studio, and you can then sort of develop in a very friendly environment in, in languages that maybe Visual Studio wasn't really intended for. So they've done this with Merlin 32, so you can edit Merlin, you know, you can edit 2GS, you know, assembly code, and, and of course 8-bit as well, right in Visual Studio uh, with all the, you know, build pipeline and source code uh, uh, highlighting and everything that you would have with any kind of modern language like C-sharp, and, uh, you know, it's all really nicely integrated. This is really fantastic. I mean, if I was on Windows, this would definitely be my uh, cross-development platform of choice. Uh, you know, it's uh, we've talked a lot in the past about how uh, myself and, and Carrington and especially Jeremy Rand have been working on a uh, sort of similar system for the Mac side using Xcode. But uh, this is certainly uh, steps above that because this is really tightly integrated with the editor. Uh, so very cool stuff for any cross-development folks out there. Uh, yeah, the French, uh, those French folks are really uh, dedicated to cross-development on the 2GS. They were producing awesome tools right and left for it. That's, a, I think, a great time to be a 2GS programmer. I agree. All right. So uh, let's see. It looks like we have an interview with Paul Terrell. Uh, if our listeners might not, who know, might not know who that is, uh, help us out here, Mike. Paul Terrell, or Paul Terrell, uh, owned the original uh, the bite shop in Mountain View, California, and he expanded it to a, a small uh, chain in that area, and then I think a few stores across the nation later on before I think he sold it. And uh, you know, the, the bite shop name appeared on a bunch of stores um, that I don't think were necessarily um, associated with Paul directly. But uh, and there's been a trend, of course recently with, you know, to, to interview the heck out of all of these early pioneers and, and then interview them again and, and again and again. But, and, and that's great because you learn all kinds of new stuff. Like we'll talk about some, another revelation from Waz in a little bit, but uh, Paul's story has been told, I think, um, in, certainly in books like uh, Fire in the Valley and, and, um, and I think he, he's mentioned in, the uh, like uh, was it West of Eden and and Return to the to the Little Kingdom books like that, but uh, he's not one that you see quite as often on on the blogs uh, as, as having uh, interviews, and so uh, it's great. This is a site called Next Shark, which I wasn't even aware of, but uh, they have a nice interview uh, with Paul, and he's he's got some uh, photos up. I've seen, I think I've seen a lot of these are like the the publicity shots of you know. We mentioned, I think you brought it up actually, Quinn, where it's the Steve and the, the two Steves uh, standing over an Apple II and they're smiling and it's you know very very posed. And, uh, but there's a couple of shots from inside the bite shop itself, and there's a nice one you know that, that was taken outside from across the street, what it looked like before it became an adult bookstore. And I don't think that there's a whole lot of uh, you know extremely revelatory information here, but it's it's nice to hear his side of the story. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's uh, I am glad that at least people are capturing all of this stuff now before, frankly, these people all die. Yeah, <laughs> <and>, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the information gets lost. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great to see. I guess if anyone, surely people in the, in our listenership know by now, but for anyone who doesn't know, of course, the Byte Shop is where they originally uh, the Steves sold their Apple One uh, motherboards uh, for six hundred sixty-six dollars and sixty-six cents, famously because. <laughs> was was fond of repeating numbers no he was a satanist <laughs> yes or yes possibly because steve jobs is the mark of the beast one of those two i'm sure all right so uh moving right along we've been talking a lot about cross development here on this show already and uh, jeremy rand is very busy with that as always he uh, uh has built a uh, sudoku game uh famously uh, or i guess uh famously in the open apple sense of the word, uh, hmm. has built a Sudoku game for Hackfest at Kansas Fest this year. And it was a really great implementation. Uh, it was very hard not to give him the first place prize for that. Uh, he, boom, was up boom. Some, <laughs> he was up against some incredibly steep competition uh, this year with, uh, of course, Carrington Vanston's uh, uh, meta tic-tac-toe game, which was incredibly polished, and uh, Martin Hayes' amazing uh, homemade Apple III monitor but uh, Sudoku was a very close third, and uh, he has added uh, real-time clock support to it, uh, which is actually quite timely because there's a lot of uh, real-time clock clones coming out right now for uh, for the 2 series. So, uh, uh, you know, Plumman, in fact, has recently cloned one for the 2C. So this would be a great application of that. Yeah, Jeremy's um, done a lot of really great HackFest entries going back to... I forget what, I forget what year it was that he... Uh, that I first saw him, but ever since then, his entries have always impressed and it's great to see that he's continuing to, to build on those. And, uh, but if you, if you have, have a, the time, you should definitely go back to the, the KFest archives and find his, uh, his previous efforts and, and check those out as well. Yeah. His output is, is quite, uh, quite high. Uh, he makes a lot of cool Apple II games. Uh, he's got that six, uh, CC 65 pipeline really down and, uh, cranks out lots of great stuff in, in C on the 8-bits. Well, speaking of great 8-bit games that are uh, in production, we've got uh, everyone's favorite, Lawless Legends. Uh, this project continues to impress. I'm just constantly blown away by it, and uh, there's awesome new footage of it on YouTube that uh, that's definitely a must-watch if, uh, if you're following Apple II development. Yeah, uh, it was about this time last year, I think, or, or maybe last the the month previous where we had the the team on to talk about uh, their progress and it's nice to see that that work is still going on uh, according to the, the the YouTube page here it says uh, uh, enjoy the new 2D and 3D map transitions and portraits so that's uh, pretty cool hurry up guys I want to play it <laughs> yeah Lawless, Lawless Legends is an awesome combination it's a perfect synergy of you know really talented developers uh, making you know a great engine and a great tool chain. And a great artist building, you know, some of the best-looking Apple II high-res uh, art that I think uh, I've ever seen. So uh, it's pretty remarkable that, that such a great team has come together and that they've stuck with it for all this time. I mean, this game's been in development for, gosh, what, two years, something like that? One year? How long has it been? I think it's been longer than that. It's, Is it? I think it's, uh, what, three years maybe now? Yeah. I, it was when I the first, I think the first place there, the first time that it, that it, that it was sort of announced was at, at K-Fest, uh, Martin Hay was showing some of the transition effects and, and what they were going for. So, um, yeah, it's it's great to see, you know, that that 
it's still coming along because, you know, this, again, is basically pretty much a volunteer project, especially at this point. So it's people working uh, in their spare time, you know, outside of having jobs and families and lives. And um, stuff like that sometimes gets abandoned or, you know, sits dormant for, for decades before it gets picked up again. But it looks like so far that uh, Lawless Legends is coming along nicely. It is indeed. So, yeah, we're all looking forward to that, and we're sure glad that they are still working on it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we've talked in the, on this show in the past about how uh, history is not always uh, what we think of it. Uh, as Jason Scott likes to talk about those uh, sort of first and second and third layers of history. Uh, and uh, we're getting uh, some some of those deeper layers here, it looks like, Mike. Uh, tell us about this one. <laughs> right. So I, I mentioned uh, with, with Paul Terrell, and he, you know, he hasn't been interviewed all that much, but guys like Waz obviously have. And there seems to be this iterative process with the uh, interviews that every time somebody talks to him, more stuff comes out that we didn't really, I mean, maybe we knew, but wasn't particularly put in such a clear fashion. And, and uh, um, Waz sat down with a, a, um, a, a, is it an elementary school or, or high school student? Uh, and gave gave her an hour long interview, and one of the, the I think the the big thing that came out of it was that Jobs didn't do a darn thing on the Apple One or the Apple Two. Now, uh, again, you got to keep in mind that that Was speaks very um, literally. So he said, you know, when he's saying that Jobs didn't do anything on my designs, it doesn't mean that Jobs didn't work on the case necessarily, because I, you know, I think I think Was may have been talking. In, in that in that situation, just about the board and the computer itself. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, yeah, it's easy to read some of these articles and just, you know, it can sound like Boaz is just trashing jobs. But yeah, he's speaking, of course, about the, the, the technical side of it. Uh, in fact, well, in addition to this YouTube video that we've got here, uh, we've also got uh, an interview from what appears to be a Finnish uh, newspaper or uh, blog. And uh, uh, I've got a Google Translate link uh, for you in the show notes. But uh, yeah, one of the poll quotes is Steve Jobs did not have anything to do with the first Apple. Uh, and uh, later on, it says, uh, uh, it's again, somewhat frank sounding. Uh, Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak recently reported that Jobs was not involved in any of the company's first computers, the Apple One or Two. Uh, he informed the young celebrity entrepreneur, uh, Let's see, sorry, this translation's a little rough here. Oh, here we go. Uh, he did not know the technology, uh, not the hardware and software sides. He wanted to be important, and important people are businessmen. That's what he wanted. <laughs> so, uh, some of that, of course, is the translation, I'm sure, but uh, you can definitely hear uh, Waz's uh, sort of uh, upfront uh, style there as well. Uh, of course, yeah, he's, I'm sure, just speaking of the actual engineering of the products. Well, I think, especially as Apple II fans, uh, we probably kind of already understood that yeah jobs didn't really do much on the computer itself so this isn't all that surprising but uh it seems to be if you're uh um if you joined the apple legions uh later on and maybe started with a mac it's you know you tend to um ascribe more technical ability to steve than than or to jobs than than he had um and so maybe it's more of a revelation to those particular blogs yeah, and I think as Jobs' sort of uh, mythos continues to grow in the culture, uh, it tends to sort of, it grows backwards in time, and it tends to kind of swallow up everything that the company ever did. And I think it's, this articles like this, I think, are a nice kind of uh, counter 
force to that to just sort of remind everyone, okay, you know, Jobs, you know, was just a businessman and a salesman and, and nothing else. Uh, and at, at the same time, I think there's, you can kind of hear when, when Waz gives interviews like this, you can hear this kind of tone that I think is common in engineers that uh, engineers tend to forget that uh, people like Jobs are a necessary evil. Uh, you know, you can make this amazing, brilliant product, uh, but it, it won't sell itself. It really won't. You know, you can m make this thing and put it on a shelf in some store and no one will ever know about it. <laughs> so uh, it's a it's sad but true uh, that people like jobs are necessary and the best companies, you know, kind of always have a balance of, of the two forces. Definitely important, I think, you know, that, that Waz is saying these things, you know, to, to clarify, remind, because like you said, as the as the mythos grows and as things, as, as facts tend to blend into exaggerations, um, you know, it, it's it's important to have a record of some from someone who was there clarifying, that, you know, specifically what part he did or, and didn't play, not saying that, you know, that what he did did wasn't important because there wouldn't have been an apple at all without without jobs but you know to say that that he was you know i think he liked to say what was his quote you know uh was was the only person who whoever who knew more electronics than me and was and steve didn't know anything about electronics <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's about right uh yeah it's worth worth remembering also that yeah jobs did did tend to, to buy into his own hype a little bit uh, and overcredit uh, some of his own technical accomplishments uh, early, uh, early in, in the early years. I think he likes to uh, have a bit of that, or he liked to have a bit of that Bill Gates uh, mythos, where you know Bill Gates started out technically pretty competent, but then grew into this business role, whereas Jobs, you know, was never really had the technical uh, aspects. But uh, I'm not sure that Jobs wanted people to know that necessarily. Uh, he tended to play up his uh, involvement in, uh, you know, the breakout game that they, that they built for uh, Atari and things like that, which, you know, of course, Jobs subcontracted to his best friend, <laughs> which uh, is a story that we know well. Uh, but, uh, yeah, all right, that's enough about Jobs, I think, for one episode. Uh, oh, no, there's more. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, so we've got a little bit of a mini Charles Mangan section uh, this month, don't we? Uh, he's the uh, proprietor of Retro Connector, uh, a little uh, enterprise that's building cool uh, adapters and things for Apple IIs. And it looks like he's uh, made an appearance on Cult of Mac. Tell us about that. Yeah. So Charles has been uh, pumping out. Um, he's been having a lot of fun with his 3D printer, apparently. And uh, you can buy... Uh, miniatures. I think originally it was just the uh, Apple II, and then um, you know I think he did a, a mini Mac, and um, and these are um, not just miniatures; they're the Raspberry Pi enclosures. Um, and now he's got a, an Apple IIc one that's come out, come out, and that's the one that they're talking about on uh, Cult of Mac. And uh, I know there's one for an Apple III in the pipe that you can drop three centimeters, and uh, um, <laughs> but it's it's. It's really and and the the great thing about the stuff that Charles is doing with the miniatures is that, that they're not junk. You know, it's it's really well uh, well crafted um, product, and and so you know when he's charging fifty dollars to one hundred and fifty dollars, depending on what you're buying um, for for this stuff, it's uh, it's worth it. It's it's really good stuff. It is, yeah. It's you know, and some of them are Raspberry Pi cases, and some of them are just just models standalone. Uh, some some of them are. There's one that's an iPod Nano uh, holder. So there's some some different versions of the different models. But uh, yeah, it's it's worth noting that these aren't just kind of mock-ups or uh, sort of approximations. You know, these are 
to scale. Uh, you know, his 2C model is so precise that when I was building some 2C peripherals uh, that I'm actually still working on uh, that attach to the 2C, you know, I used his model uh, and it worked out just fine. Uh, you know, his quarter, uh, his quarter scale 2C model, I just literally multiplied it by four and it was basically perfect model of the <laughs> nice. 2C. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the quality is definitely here. And uh, I've heard people complain about the cost uh, of these items, but, uh, you know, he's not getting rich on these, I guarantee, because I've done a lot of work with Shapeways as well, which is where these models are being produced, and, uh, you know, their cost is very high. So, you know, I guarantee you that, you know, 90% of, of that cost is just Shapeways cut. So, uh, you know, if you if you want a really cool um, Raspberry Pi case or anything like that, you, you won't do better than these for sure. They're awesome. Uh, and he's got, uh, you know, SD drive enclosures that are disc twos. And, you know, uh, he's even got some Atari stuff now, Blue Atari. And, you know, he's branching out into different retro computers. So, uh, and the colors are accurate for the most part. So, you know, they're, yeah, you, just, I, you won't do better than these models. They're awesome. And that's not the only thing that, that he's been doing. Um, he's... Uh, Charles, every it seems like every Kansas Fest now he shows up with different connectors for stuff, you know, which you didn't know that you needed until he showed you that they were there, and then you went, "Oh, I really need that." And I, I know he's built like connectors for you know to to plug your Apple II mouse into your modern computer, um, and I think you I think there's one now where you can go the other way, and the most recent one, um, and this is under his Option Eight company, um, is this uh, the audio connector? It's an internal audio connector that. Um, Basically plugs into a, a, a slot on uh, a slot connector on the back of your Apple II um, that you can buy um, from him right now. Yeah, and in fact, he's uh, recently made one for the Apple IIc and the uh, 2C Plus as well. So, That's right. uh, well, I should say just the 2C Plus. Uh, the 2C, of course, has a headphone jack, but uh, uh, he's recently posted a really nicely produced video of how to install that on the 2C Plus. Uh, it does involve some drilling, uh, but the end result is really, really nice. So I think it's I think it's probably worth doing if you uh, have that need for a headphone jack. It, it's for some strange reason the 2C Plus did not include a headphone jack, uh, and the 2C did, and it's a bit of a mystery. And in fact, uh, Charles points out in his video that the molding for the headphone jack is actually there in the 2C Plus case in exactly the same place as it is on the original 2C. So it seems like at some point they had planned to do so, and there's even a mounting hole in the PCB for it. Uh, but then they just uh, didn't. So it's <laughs> it's a mystery how uh, the 2C ended up with headphone jack and the 2C Plus did not. But uh, luckily, Charles can uh, fix that for you. And in fact, I think, uh, Charles, this is not on our spreadsheet, but uh, I saw on Facebook either yesterday or today where he has um, turned a, a disc 2 drive into a Blu-ray player. Is that is that right? Oh, is that right? Oh, I haven't actually seen that one. Very cool. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, he's got. Some, I think uh, he was he was originally the the guy who did the Mac Mini inside a disc two. Is that right? Yes. I think that was Charles. Yeah, because the uh, taking advantage of the fact that a CD is the same size as a five and a quarter inch floppy, so you just sort of lined up the slots, and that uh, still functions in every way as a, as a Mac Mini, which is just absolutely brilliant. Uh, but uh, yeah, and you mentioned his mouse efforts as well. Uh, he gave a great talk about the Apple II mouse at Kansas Fest this year. I think he's probably the foremost expert on the uh, physical uh, aspects of the mouse. And uh, he's now got products that go both ways. You can use uh, a modern mouse with your Apple II uh, with one product, or he's got another product that lets you use your Apple II mouse with your modern computer, with your modern USB uh, devices for the ultimate uh 
in uh, hipster experience. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, nothing more uh, awesome, I think, than using an Apple II mouse uh, at work with your modern computer. Uh, but it's worth noting there's actual practical applications to that as well. So, you know, you could use this, for example, on a Raspberry Pi, uh, emulating an Apple II, and it would then function as Apple II mouse in that capacity if you had the right kind of emulator running on your uh, Raspberry Pi. So, neat stuff from Retro Connector. Yep, a lot of good stuff coming from uh, Mr. Mangan. All right, well, uh, the highlight uh, and keynote speaker at Kansas Fest this year was Burger Becky, and uh, she's been making the rounds lately on the retro uh, podcasts and blogs and so on, uh, not least of which for her uh, Bart's Tale uh, Bart's Tale 3 revival, uh, sorry, Bart's Tale trilogy revival that she's working on uh, as part of the Bart's Tale 4 uh, reboot that's happening. And uh, some... Uh, uh, interviews have come along from a fellow named Matt Barton. He's got a YouTube channel called Matt Chat, and he interviews uh, you know, folks from back in the day from all types of retro computing and uh, related industries. So he's got a couple with Burger Becky, uh, courtesy of uh, listener Neville. Thank you for sending these in. Uh, we will link to that. They are a uh, good watch. Uh, let's see, last month we talked about the Apple II Festival France, which is kind of like a mini K-Fest, and uh, some video has come out from that. Uh, it's actually a really nicely produced little video clip, someone kind of walking through the event uh, with a camera, and it's kind of edited together to show you some of the highlights of the event. And uh, it looks like a lot of fun. Uh, it's definitely, uh, if you imagine what K-Fest would be like in France, I think it's this. Uh, because <laughs> it's like K-Fest, but it's in a really cool old kind of medieval looking building and everyone's drinking wine. And uh, it looks like a lot of fun. Uh, and the video is actually super nicely produced. So it's worth uh, definitely worth watching. Uh, so carry on with your bad selves, Apple II <laughs> folks in France. Awesome. Uh, let's see. I guess this next one's mine too. The uh, one of my favorite 2GS games, probably everyone's favorite 2GS game, is Zany Golf. And listener Todd sent in sent in a recent uh, blog post from Matt Ownby, whose uh, interview we featured with John Brooks recently here on the show. Uh, so uh, Todd, I guess, uh, rather um, Matt, has been playing Zany Golf again, and I guess was getting frustrated <laughs> with the difficulty. <laughs> and uh, so he reverse engineered Zany Golf, and he developed a hacked version of it that gives you unlimited uh, strokes. So if you've been wanting to see more of Zany Golf and uh, couldn't quite get the, the, the hang of it, then this might be the hack for you. Uh, I was a huge fan of this game. I played it to death, and I got so good at it that I actually could play through all the way. Uh, did you did you play Zany Golf, Mike? I did not. Okay, so it has a quite, I guess, now legendary and amazing Easter egg in it. It has an entire hidden level in it, much like uh, Marble, Ma Marble Madness, which we talked about on the show recently. Uh, Zany Golf has one as well. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, on the uh, uh, allegedly final level, the laser uh, laser space kind of themed level there's a uh, place where uh, kind of hidden in one corner of the level there's a, uh, a mouse hole and you can see the little uh, mouse's red eyes blinking and if you shoot uh, the ball into that hole when the eyes are showing uh, then you get taken to a secret level so uh, just in case anyone <laughs> by this time surely everybody knows that but just in case you didn't uh, there you go go do it uh, you find an awesome secret level it's definitely worth playing and this hack will make it even easier to get there. All right, so uh, tell us uh, about Jason Scott here. Mike, what's going on here? Okay, this is actually about a documentary uh, called 8-Bit Generation, and you know we love our retro 
computing uh, documentaries. And, and of course, we have one of the best documentarians out there, Jason Scott, uh, has, has made a few of his own. And he's also uh, been very supportive of, of the efforts of others. And uh, back in 2000, maybe 11 or 12, uh, the documentary 8-Bit Generation was announced, and this was described as the definitive documentary series about retro computing and retro gaming. All you wanted to, all you wanted or needed to know about the 8-Bit era is shown and told right here. More than 55 interviews, more than 110 machines, and coin ops, 12 hours of footage, and tons of extra content are the, the numbers are the numbers of this must have for every geek out there. And uh, everybody was uh, very excited when that was announced. And then around 2012, early, maybe mid 2012, uh, the updates stopped coming and then the website went offline and, and it seemed to be kind of a lost cause and everybody went, aw. But Jason Scott being the, the um, what's the right word here? He doesn't give up on things easily like this. <laughs> we'll just we'll just put it that way. And He's a bulldog, so, right? And so he managed to track down uh, the people who had had worked on this, and and was kind of you know what's going on? Is there any is there anything I can do to help? And um, he coordinated with them and and came up with a plan to resurrect uh, the show or t- to resurrect the, the the documentary. And he's got a nice write up. Uh, on his uh, ascii.textfiles.com about uh, you know what happened and 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 where he's hoping it'll go, um, and, but it looks like uh, maybe it'll it'll be back, and so fingers crossed for that. Yeah, this is exciting. Uh, I think he said in uh, in interviews that uh, this documentary is so beautiful that and so well shot that it just it needed to see, see the light of day one way or another and even if that meant if it couldn't be finished even if that meant just getting the rough cuts uh in the unedited content out there uh, he said he's so impressed with this that just the, the world needs to see it so that's really high praise coming from him and very exciting uh and if you are a documentary doc, documentary junkie uh <laughs> such as such as myself uh then this is a must watch so really really happy that this has come back uh, in fact, a uh, uh, friend of the show, Ken Gagney, has talked about this recently on Retro Computing uh, Roundtable, I believe, recently as well, that he backed the original Kickstarter for this uh, and has now backed uh, this one again. <laughs> and uh, apparently they've said, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they've said that people who backed the original uh, Kickstarter uh, will actually get their copies of it if you write in and uh, you know maybe write to them and make sure that they still have your records. But uh, they do intend to actually honor the purchasers and backers from the uh, original Kickstarter. So that's great news as well. Looks like, you know, they're earnest, earnest folks there. Uh, they're not trying to screw anybody. It just, uh, things just didn't go well for, for the first attempt at this documentary. But glad it's going to see the light of day one way or another. Yeah, it's very cool, especially in an era that we seem to have entered now where uh, you never know whether you're going to see anything for your money on Kickstarter. There's been a spate of articles about People who have maybe not been intentional frauds have started out with the the best of intentions, but for whatever reason never delivered on their products, and then just started in more Kickstarters. And um, so, yeah, it's it's great to see that that there's some follow through here. Yeah, have you have you ever backed a Kickstarter, Mike? No, I have not. I have not either, and uh, I'm kind of glad I haven't. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of a intentionally not backing any of them, even though I see a lot of great ideas. I think it's especially common with. Uh, consumer electronics types of products you see t- 
tons and tons of Kickstarters for those, and probably 95% of them never go anywhere. And uh, I think people just don't realize how difficult product development actually is and, you know, manufacturing and so on. Uh, you know, you see crazy 3D printer projects and crazy, you know, magic uh, other electronic devices uh, with, you know, $100,000 Kickstarters or whatever. And I just look at those and think there's just no way. I mean, you know, that's a tenth of what they're going to need to get this thing to market this. But they just don't know that yet because they don't realize how difficult, you know, manufacturing and, and uh, industrial design and so on actually is. It's It's a very long road from mock-up product that kind of works on my bedroom bench workbench uh from that to you know product that can ship in the thousands uh, and work in the real world it's a much bigger gap than i think people realize yep uh but a company that has a very uh good mastery of that gap i guess for lack of a better way to say that uh, is ultimate micro and uh they are continuing to uh cause my head to explode uh tell us about their latest exploits mike yeah so they're 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 definitely full of some wind and some awesome over there. Uh, they have announced uh, the idea to see, which is oops, that is the uh, rebirth of the C drive, if you can believe that. Wow. Uh, this this was yeah this was a uh, an almost legendary device for a long time. We've talked about it on the show, in fact, uh, in the past. This was a proto a device that never quite made it out of the prototype stage uh, at the tail end of the 2c where it allowed you to put a hard drive inside your 2c and uh, I, I talked about it because i was particularly fond of how the original uh, inventor had used the uh, reset button by itself uh, in tapping it in special patterns to control the device and uh, it uh, a couple of prototypes were made in fact uh, one of the prototypes comes up on ebay periodically uh, usually for ridiculous money but never sells and uh, the uh, uh, few shows ago, we talked about a blog post that the inventor had written explaining the internals of, of how the device worked, and uh, uh, really, really awesome. Uh, and Ultimate Micro has stepped up and is cloning this thing. Now, is this uh, another uh, Kansas Fest uh, Burger Becky benefit? Because I know that she talked about uh, on our show having taken her C drive to Kansas Fest, and she had like the drive itself was broken, but the board worked, and somebody else had. Uh, uh, a broken board, but the drive worked, and they were able to combine it into a working unit. And I know ROMs were ripped and things like that. Is this is this the uh, the end result of that? Uh, I I don't think that actually happened at KFest, um, but uh, I think yeah, she has uh, connected with uh, people. Yeah, I think there's only three or four of these things in existence, and yeah, she had one, and she found someone else who had one, and they were able to combine them. And yeah, she uh, wrote the uh, uh, ROMs for the original as well. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure how much of that uh, has contributed to this project. I know that, uh, as usual, the uh, challenge, I think, was cloning some of the custom silicon, uh, the CPLDs and so on, uh, that, you know, these boards inevitably had one or two uh, of these custom silicon chips that are needed to usually to bamboozle the uh, Apple II's memory management into making this device do what it needs to do. And uh, so they've, yeah, Ultimate Micro really seems to be good at that uh, difficult aspect of this. So they uh, they have that down, and uh, they are continuing to produce uh, amazing products with this. So this is still in the uh, kind of late um, development stages, uh, but they've posted some photos uh, of their progress on A2 Central. They've got real boards uh, that appear to be working. So uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, and uh, yet another company that uh, will be getting more of my money. <laughs> And if your if your Apple IIe uh, just doesn't have enough memory in it, you know, even if you have the one 
uh, one meg expansion board, uh, you can go to Ultimate Micro now and order yourself a RIM Factor 4 meg uh, expansion, which is uh, a clone of the original uh, AE design. Um, and I, it says that, uh, let's see, according to the, the post on A2 Central, uh, the card is in final testing. Um, and it's, it appears to be working. We'll be shipping very soon to those who pre-ordered. So fingers crossed that that'll be uh, available uh, to to the general Apple II buying public soon. Yeah, the RAM Factor was an awesome card, so glad to see that reborn. I think we called it the right thing this time. <laughs> I think so. Is this a good time to do our corrections? Uh, <laughs> well, we got a couple of, uh, seg- other, we got a couple other items here to. to <laughs> All right. So. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about John Brooks again. He's, of course, uh, recently on the show with his interview about Rastan, and now he's doing some uh, disk image nibble utilities. Is that right? Alex Lee posted on, on Facebook. Uh, it's a, it, it was a tweet, actually, from, uh, like you said, the Rastan programmer, John Brooks, that he is writing new software uh, in order to release old software. And this disk image utility, what it does is uh, it, it does a fast 3.5-inch uh, data read and head stepping via bare metal IWM control uh, displays the three and a half inch disc nibbles graphically in SHR on the fly and apparently breaks all known emulators. So it does not work in emulation. <laughs> uh, and I think the idea here is that um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's working yet, but I, I know the, the uh, one of the end goals here is to allow imaging of copy protected Discs, which we really haven't had in the Apple II world yet. So, and that's that whole the bare metal IWM control stuff. Yeah, that's cool stuff. Uh, there's definitely a number of people working on directly imaging copy protected discs, you know, with um, essential disc duplicator cards, you know, various hardware devices and things. And uh, yeah, it's important to to preserve that. You know, most of our software preservation is done through you know the pirated copies of things and uh, and 4AM. So, yeah, and of course 4AM. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, copy protection was a, a big uh, historical um, you know, thing of historical significance, especially in the Apple II, where copy protection was such a you know incredibly deep and complex game of cat and mouse. You know, a lot of other microcomputers, copy protection wasn't really a big deal uh, because the uh, you know those, those machines that had those sort of smart peripherals, like the uh, you know the Atari and the C64. Uh, you know, there was copy protection, and you know, and there were crackers, but it wasn't nearly to the extent that it was on the Apple II, because of course the Apple II uh, was entirely you know, CPU-controlled disk access, and, and frankly, uh, just much more advanced than those other machines. Sure, yeah, of course, that goes without saying. And uh, but yeah, because of that direct CPU control uh, of the uh, of the disk all the way down to the bits, uh, and what the head is doing, it, it enabled just crazy, complex, and sophisticated copy protection schemes, which then, of course, bred crazy, sophisticated crackers. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, this is uh, this is neat stuff, and uh, glad to see uh, more development in this area. Have to see, watch and see what comes out of this. All right, well, moving right along, uh, we got an email from listener Wayne, who has developed a kind of modern reboot of the old uh, Apple II pinball game called Raster Blaster, and uh, so he sent us along a link to that, which we'll share in the show notes. Do you remember Raster Blaster, Mike? I do. I was a big fan of all those pinball games on the Apple II. Davis oh, yeah. Midnight Magic and Raster Blaster and Pinball Construction Set, all that stuff. So. Yeah, I was really into Pinball Construction Set. I didn't play much of the sort of canned uh, pinball games, but uh, Pinball Construction Set definitely pushed my buttons. Yeah, I think the... <laughs> oh, there's their blooper for this month. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I, I think these, the, the, the as you said, the, the canned uh, pre-designed games like um, 
Raster Blaster and, and David's Midnight Magic uh, were sort of, for me, the gateway drug to uh, to pinball construction set. I, I spent, uh, I filled many a disc with uh, half-finished pinball uh, table designs. <laughs> yeah, as did I. I think, as, as we all did, I suppose. I think we all, yeah, threw a bunch of stuff on there and, you know, played around with it and never, I don't know if anyone ever made anything, like, serious with it, <laughs> but it uh, it was good fun to play with. So this is currently available uh, for download uh, for for Windows and Mac OS X and Android. I don't see a link for uh, iOS, but it looks like there's going to be a, a Linux version will be coming soon. And this is um, it's not you're not playing an emulation of the old game or or, or clone of the old game. It's uh, these are definitely uh, updated graphics and and music and stuff. But it looks like he's done a fairly uh done a done a good job of of keeping to the original at least in spirit for sure all right well our last bit of news is probably everyone's favorite game ultima 4 what's going on here mike uh well it just reminds me that i'm old <laughs> yeah you and me both <laughs> ultimacodex.com has a nice uh, article uh, reminding us that ultima 4 has been was released 30 years ago this month let that sink in, folks. Ultima Four <laughs> is thirty years old. <laughs> oh, gosh, so it's a it's a short little write up, um, and there it's generally just a, a lot of links to other web pages. But yeah, if you need a reminder that you're getting old and going to die soon, just read this article. <laughs> awesome. All right, uh, let's see. We don't talk about eBay on this show, but uh, I think we have some eBay items. So let's roll into those. Look, rare! Steve Jobs, look what we found on eBay. All right, so the first item actually isn't on eBay, um, but it is an auction item, so I put it there. So this is is um, this is again. It's another Apple One computer, and it was it's being auctioned by Bonhams Bonhams. I don't know. Bonhams, yeah. Yeah, and this was being described as in near perfect working condition. We mentioned in a previous episode Corey Cohen. He was uh, uh, profiled in the New York Times as being the guy who who comes out and tests these things and and cleans them up and and makes sure that they're authentic for the auction houses and he's put his stamp of approval on this as well and uh, they're estimating that uh, it's going to go for 300 to 500 thousand dollars so if you got some cash laying around uh you can i guess treat yourself as, as big as that number is it uh, definitely represents a massive decline uh they seem to have peaked i mean the, there was what the height of them they went for something 900,000 or something i don't know if anyone over a million but uh yeah this is a, f- a far cry from from the uh peak of apple one mania yeah, there was there was a lot of talk. Uh, I think when that one went for nine hundred thousand, about uh, how soon it would break a million dollars, and I don't think it ever did. Um, this one is marked zero one dash zero zero five nine on the back in black ink, which indicates that it's part of that batch that was sold the f- the first fifty that was sold through through the bite shop that we mentioned earlier, and um, it doesn't. Let's see, I'm not seeing a lot of other stuff about this okay here it is uh so it was uh, owned by tom romke who owned the personal computer store in florida and was an apple um apple level one certified technician in 1981 and uh he has had he's only used this thing once or twice 
and he's had it the entire time, so it's original owners. So if you're looking for a pristine version, it's got, it even has the the white ceramic 6502 on it. Uh, then this is this is the one to get. Cool. And is this one function? Do we know? Yeah, it's uh, been verified as functional. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, out of my price range, but uh, <laughs> you never know. Uh, well, other things uh, in Apple history are also now starting to become more and more valuable. Uh, looks like Apple IIs, uh, Rev Zero Apple II, I assume, uh, these are rising in value, right? Yeah, they're they're getting up there. Uh, obviously, um, the earlier serial numbers are going to fetch more money. Obviously, the more complete the computer is, the more money that's going to get if it's in working condition, if it's got the original chips that are, you know, the, the date stamp, the, the date stamps on the chips are, are, t- are period correct. You know, if the, the board number roughly matches the case number, if it's got the original um, power supply, all these things add value to it. But um, obviously the ones that, that are going to go for the highest prices, again, are the, are the very first ones. And in fact, uh, um, Apple II number 0005, or the serial number 0005 is being auctioned. On eBay now, it's not really that computer anymore because it's been upgraded uh, to an Apple II Plus over the years. And I guess the cover, the the case cover is a different cover. Uh, It doesn't really fit right. So what you're really actually bidding on is the case and plate and and base pan and and keyboard. Um, Those are the, the original pieces of 0005. The interesting thing about this one is that this is the Macintosh, or <laughs> Macintosh, wow. This is the Apple II that was described. Um, it, it appeared in the Welcome to Macintosh documentary um, when the, they were talking about the, the, the very first uh, Apple II retailer store. The guy's name, because I don't have the auction in front of me, I, I can't remember it, Wayne something. Uh, apparently he passed away, and so his friend is auctioning this off. It's kind of kind of sad, but um, you're not getting the, the board. I guess nobody knows where that is, and the cover is gone. So I don't know that it's going to go for the thousands and thousands of dollars that they're hoping that it will. Uh, but it is an interesting piece, at least because of that. It's it's one of the original uh, ventless cases. So and and you really don't see those at all anymore. Yeah, this thing is an interesting mix of extremely valuable, you know, the low serial number, the ventless case, the appearance in that video. Uh, but also it has a lot of things that degrade its value a lot, you know, having been upgraded and some of the parts are have been swapped out. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, as of this recording, I think it's uh, $3,000 is the current uh, uh, bid on it. So it'll go for some money, but uh, it seems like someone might take this and then replace the, you know, downgrade it back to an Apple II from a II Plus and, uh, you know, it might go for considerably more then. It's uh, interesting piece, nonetheless. Yeah, that that seems to be a, a thing that happens these days, where you know somebody will dig one of these out of the basement and understand that it has a lot of value as a, an Apple II, put it on on eBay, and uh, somebody like one of us will snap it up and fix it, as in you know restore it back to way the way it should have been, and a week or two later it'll appear appear again for you know three times the value. Yeah, and in fact uh, the. Original Apple IIs are valuable enough that some uh, scams are starting to appear uh, similar to that. You know, I've seen uh, items on eBay that are Apple II Pluses, uh, and in the photos, they actually blur out the, the Plus under under the Apple II on the badge. And, uh, of course, you can tell from photos of the motherboard and so on that uh, that it's an Apple II Plus. But, uh, 
there are definitely people trying to get away with stuff in this regard. So if you're buying an Apple II uh, on eBay, do be careful. Yeah, uh, Mike, Mike Willegal, uh, who also has the uh, Apple I registry where he tracks uh, all of the known examples of the Apple I that still exists, has a section on the Rev Zero Apple II because he for a while was selling uh, a, um, a replica Rev Zero boards. Um, and he talks about, there's, there's a number of things that you can look at, uh, that will tell you immediately whether this is a rev zero or, you know, a rev four or whether it matches, um, you know, the, the board matches the case and that sort of thing. A lot of really good tips there. So if you, if you're wanting to buy one of these and you're not really sure what you're looking for, check out his blog. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to uh, weird gaming. Okay. You know, Choplifter, you know, Load Runner, but do you know this? It's time for a weird game. Mike, uh, why don't you go first here? What you got for us? I have a game called President Elect, which is a, um, it was put out by SSI. This is not actually a game that I was aware of back in the day um, because SSI to me was tabletop wargaming on your Apple II. Battle of Antietam and, and things like that, uh, which were, were great games, but I, I never saw, I don't think I ever saw a president-elect uh, anywhere in the stores. Uh, I don't really know why that is. It's it's uh, a turn-based political simulation game released in 1981, and um, it, I guess is, is commonly thought of as, as the first uh, commercially published political uh, strategy game. And the way it works is is you... Um, you get to, you get to be, um, you get to run, um, for, for the presidency of the United States. And there are several different play modes. Uh, there's the historical version where you, you pick, um, the president that you want to run as, um, and then the game will fill in like the vice president and, and the conditions for the, for, for your campaign and things like that. Or, um, you can play uh, the other ver- the the other setting, the ahistorical is what they're calling it, where uh, you can you can create your own um, candidates, or you can mix and match presidential uh, uh, presidential candidates that that exist but didn't didn't exist in the same time period. And um, I, there's a there's an earlier version came out in '81, I think, that um, the gameplay is the same. Um, as the later version, but the later version also had the, the Reagan-Mondale race, and you could play as Bill Clinton and Bruce Babbitt and Michael Dukakis and a few other um, names that you haven't heard since 1989 on Murphy Brown. <laughs> that's cool. That's that's quite interesting. I haven't heard of that uh, at all either. Uh, yet it's funny to me, SSI is uh, most associated with those um, later American-style CRPGs, they had the uh, Dungeons & Dragons license for a while. So, That's right, yeah. Uh, they, they made Pool of Radiance and uh, some other uh, sequels that were actually quite excellent in the kind of the latter uh, part of the uh, 8-bits lifetime. So, The uh, creator of the game, his name is uh, Nelson Hernandez, and he called himself, uh, very humbly called himself, the best predictor of presidential elections in the country. And his claim was that, that with the 1988 version that was released, um, that the game was accurate to within 1% uh, of the actual elections uh, every time. So uh, definitely some, some dark voodoo going on there with the statistics in the background. And if you're, if you're into politics and you just like to play strategy games, this is a lot of fun. I've, I've been playing the heck out of it this week. 
<laughs> cool. That's a that's a lofty claim indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it almost uh, it seems like a bit, bit of a sort of precursor to a balance of power. That kind of yeah. uh, uh, famous Mac and two GS game uh, where you were. Or yeah, simulating uh, geopolitical interactions uh, and things. It wasn't actually any combat involved. It was just you know political uh, machinations between nations. Yep. Neat stuff. Well, uh, interestingly, I have a sort of a similar game. Uh, my pick this month is mm-hmm. a game called uh, Zendar, and uh, you might call it a sci-fi version of the of a similar sort of game. Uh, it's a sci-fi game, but again, there's no fighting in it per se. It's just about allocating resources and trying to you are trying to take over territory but um you are doing so mainly with trade negotiation and uh sort of cultural influence uh it's a bit of a strange beast it's uh, i like it because it's uh, i couldn't find any kind of publisher on it i actually couldn't even find the author of it so i apologize uh if you're out there but it appears to be one of those games that was kind of Maybe sold locally in Ziploc baggies, or maybe distributed on bulletin boards. I'm not sure. Um, and, but it uh, it's relatively nicely produced for what appears to be a homebrew effort. It's got some nice high-res graphics. Uh, there's a map um, uh, screen that you mainly interact with, and there's even some help screens. You can actually play this without the manual, which is unusual for games <laughs> of the period. You can actually yeah. you know, sort of yeah, you kind of muddle your way through this thing, and uh, yeah, so you're sort of playing turns and uh you know trying to negotiate with the other countries and so on so there's clearly some sort of elaborate um you know math going on behind the scenes to decide uh you know when trade deals are good and when they're not and uh when annexation is successful and when it isn't so uh it's a game of numbers for sure uh it's kind of like a very fancy looking spreadsheet um but uh if you uh, if you like this sort of thing it's one that you could probably pick up and suss your way through uh without the manual uh, so yeah, it is on Virtual Apple, but it doesn't run on Virtual Apple. But if you download the disk image, it will run in uh, Virtual Apple 2, uh, of course, the uh, um, local uh, emulator for uh, Mac that we all love. So uh, I will uh, link to that in the show notes as well. So give it a whirl if you're into something new and obscure. Great. All right. Well, we have a little bit of a tech segment this month, so let's uh, roll into that. Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. So I've got kind of a, a nice article that came up on Big Mess of Wires, the uh, site that's sort of famous uh, in recent Apple II history for having, uh, this is the fellow who ported, uh, or added rather, support to his floppy emu for the Mac. It's a, you know an SD card or forget if it's SD or Compact Flash, but he added support for uh, the Apple II recently. And as sort of part of that, uh, he kind of had to figure out, you know, Apple II disk uh, stuff. <laughs> and so he kind of did a little primer article on Apple II copy protection. So if you're a fan of 4AM, for example, and who among us is not, then, uh, you know, this article actually will help you sort of understand uh, a lot of what's going on in those cracks. So, he, you know, it's just kind of a basic intro to how the Apple II disk uh, works and uh uh, you know, what kinds of techniques were used for basic disk access and then uh, basic forms of copy protection. So good read if you're into that stuff. Yeah, I, I remember um, scouring the BBSs um, for, you know, Krakowitz's articles on, on on copy protection techniques. And when I bought the senior prom card, it came with a couple of really thick manuals on on the different known methods for, for copy protection and, and generally how you break them and 
a, a tutorial on on uh, boot code tracing. So uh, it's it's neat to see that this stuff is is still being uh, explored and uh, enjoyed today. Yeah, I think people today, kids today, RAR, uh, may not realize or aren't, aren't going to be aware of, of this whole section of, uh, you know, of, of computer technology that just isn't going to be a thing anymore. This notion of, of copy protection of floppies, you know, it was such a big deal back at the time. You know, their whole companies uh, were dedicated to producing this stuff and people dedicated much of their time to breaking it, of course. And there was such a... Uh, so so much complexity and so much technical elegance going on that you know most people never saw <laughs> and uh, i think that's why i love you know 4am's cracks and and stuff like this cuz it's a window into that that amazing world you know how clever people were being both in, in implementing these protection schemes and then in also breaking them uh, so it's uh, i love seeing things like this that will help uh, preserve that technical fascination sure all right, well, we have uh, quite a bit of feedback, so we better get started on that, shall we? You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. All right, the first uh, email I've got here is from listener Daniel, who writes in to say the Paul Ludus interview was wonderful. Thanks. Well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate that. That was a fun interview to do. Uh, let's see. Uh, next, I've got one from uh, listener Stuart, who says, uh, Hi, guys. Firstly, love the show. Really look forward to each episode. Thank you very much. Uh, however, I don't want to bring you down or anything, but the show is just ridiculously long. <laughs> so uh, uh, we've got a we've got a couple of interviews like this. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, on the one hand, we, we do want to make a show that people want to listen to. Uh, but on the other hand, we also want to make the kind of show that we want to make and uh you know this this length kind of seems to fit for us uh, as far as the amount of news that we want to cover each month and the we don't you know the interviews that we we get are i think really interesting and we don't want to cut them off so uh you know and the, the amount of content that we generate i mean we generate probably four hours of, of tape every month and uh poor mike has to edit that down and editing Ruby. that yeah and editing editing that down to say an hour is much much more difficult than editing it down to three hours you know if there's a big difference between just cutting out the the ums and the swear words uh compared to editing it down you know into a really tight package like you would for you know a commercial radio show or something so uh uh you know we're we're not getting paid for this folks so uh <laughs> we're, we're gonna make the kind of show that we like to make and uh, if, uh, if it's too long for you, I recommend the uh, pause button. It's uh, <laughs> often often the same button you use to play, so it's easy to find. All right. Um, let's see. Next email I've got here is from Antoine, of course, uh, who we like to talk about on the show. And uh, he writes again to Mr. and Mrs. Podcast, uh, as he's uh, wants to do. Uh, so he podcast. writes... <laughs> yes, he writes to tell us about uh, our, uh, our the thread that we talked about last time on um, John Brooks's thread with um, fellow named Peter and Antoine talking about the back door and, and cracking Rastan uh, while listening to the show. So uh, there's been a bit of confusion there. Uh, so I had said that uh, Antoine found a way to bypass the protection check, but uh, to not really uh, crack it. And uh, so the actual challenge of cracking it for real, disabling the CRC and so on, uh, was done by Peter. So I think we attributed it to Antoine. So that was our mistake. Uh, so Antoine wants to, you know, make sure we Peter gets that credit. Uh, he's really good, he says, and his posts at uh, Hack the Apple are of a high level. So, uh, so he says Antoine uh, lost the challenge technically, but uh, still lives well. Uh, and uh, Peter is the man there. So 
uh, awesome. Peter, nice work. And in fact, Peter wrote us in uh, to, as well to sort of uh, make sure that uh, that was clear because he's, yeah, he's, I guess, doing a lot of cracking. Uh, he did the uh, uh, the file-based Conan crack, uh, Mr. Do and Karotica. Uh, those file-based cracks are great for if you want to put these games on your hard drive, for example. Uh, but he doesn't put crack screens in, which is nice, similar to 4AM. Uh, so it's uh, nice to give him credit where we can. <laughs> so keep up the great work there, uh, Peter. Uh, let's see. And next inter- uh, next message I have is from listener Carl, who says, um, hello from Amsterdam. Oh, well, hello from Amsterdam. I have some friends there. I enjoy your uh, your podcast very much, uh, but as he also says it's too long. Please make it smaller. Uh, so yeah, we've uh, Mike and I have talked a little bit about um, you know different formats that we could do, and honestly, there are some things that we could do breaking up the show into more pieces. But uh, honestly, it's going to be a lot more work for us, and we uh, struggle to get the show out uh, once a month as it is. As you've seen recently, we've been late a couple times. So uh, Mike and I are both very busy people, and uh, this format that we're doing now is uh, is one that we're able to to do in the time we have. Uh, I don't think people realize that, that making smaller content is actually often more work. But but we do empathize with your pain. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We appreciate the feedback. We really do. And we want to make a show that people want to listen to. But uh, it's uh, it's also free. So uh, we hope that people <laughs> appreciate it. I listen to, frankly, I listen to a lot of podcasts that are uh, uh, very long. And uh, I don't mind just pausing and coming back later. The uh, Televisionaries, for example, is one that I really like. And they're notorious for producing six or seven hour episodes. <laughs> and uh, so I just uh, listen to a little bit here and there. Uh, it works. So... Thanks for your patience, folks, with uh, with our format. Uh, we hope you'll continue to listen. Uh, next email I have is from listener William. Uh, he's currently listening to episode 50. Oh, we talked about uh, t-shirt options, and uh, he recommends Teespring. And uh, I've actually heard some other uh, good recommendations for that uh, service uh, from other sources recently, so we may give that a shot, and who knows, maybe open Apple t-shirts will be a thing after all. Uh, let's see. Next from listener uh, Adam, who says, great show. Always interesting to listen to Burger Becky. Uh, he says he loved my joke uh, about Ken's new perfume, Retro by Gagne. Uh, <laughs> once again, I have to give credit to uh, Carrington for that one. I ripped it off shamelessly. And apologies to Ken if he uh, doesn't find that funny. <laughs> uh, let's see. He's asking uh, if anyone has tried repairing uh, Apple RGB monitors rather than replacing them with uh, LCDs. Um, and that's a good question. Uh, we've talked a lot about recently about Javier's uh, conversions to LCD. And uh, yeah, I think for the Apple RGB monitors, you know, the more rare ones like the GS monitor and the uh, was the Apple Color 100 for the Apple 3, uh, those are definitely worth repairing. And yeah, old app, uh, old monitors are actually definitely repairable. Frequently, all they need is, is replacing the capacitors in them. Uh, sometimes they need, uh, uh, you know, a new neck board or something like that. But uh, he mentions that in the arcade hobby, that's actually quite common to just repair these things uh, because they're basically unobtainium and quite valuable in the arcade machines. Uh, and while we're not quite there yet with the Apple II, you know, these monitor, the, the basic composite monitors uh, were produced in the gajillions and uh, there's no shortage of them. But uh, uh, certainly for the yeah, GS monitors and so on, uh, repairing them is an excellent option. So thanks for mentioning that. Adam, uh, if you Google, you know, 2GS monitor repair, for example, you'll find um, uh, lots of information on how to do that. It's really not very difficult. Uh, let's see, listener uh, Todd, oh, we talked about him before earlier with his zany golf cheats. So thanks for, thanks for sending that in. And uh, I asked friend of the show, uh, and, and Andrew Rohan writes in to uh, mention, uh, just to clarify that we talked about um, 
the GSOS updates for 6.02 and 6.03 last month and how there was some confusion about which uh, whose contributions were included in those builds. And uh, yeah, he just wanted to make sure that we knew that um, uh, he, he was not directly involved in the content of it. So um, rest assured, uh, we will pass that along. And if anyone else, uh, you know, as we said last month, had their content in there and was not acknowledged, uh, let us know. We'd be happy to give credit where it's due. Uh, let's see. Last one I have here is from uh, listener Todd, who writes in to say thanks um, for another great show. And uh, let's see. Uh, he says no, no no matter how long the interview with Burger Becky is, uh, it would have been too short. So uh, that's <laughs> how we uh, we feel the same way. Uh, so yeah, if, uh, if you're happy with the length of the show, uh, let us know <laughs> as well, so we can get a sense of uh, uh, how many people like the length and how many people don't. Uh, let's see. And uh, oh, and he mentions that. Uh, uh, his initial email was bounced uh, by our spam filter. So yeah, that'll certainly happen sometimes, folks. So if it gets bounced, uh, just go ahead and uh, write us again. Uh, best address to reach us, is, reach us at is podcast at open-apple.net or feedback at open-apple.net. And we uh, always love to hear from you. Uh, Mike, do you have any feedback? No, uh, not direct feedback. I do have uh, some, I guess this is a... a an error correction based on feedback that we got on Facebook. Um, so Sean Fee, um, who is a big uh, applied engineering fan and collector, uh, posted uh, to let us know that uh, AE um, Plumman, I'm sorry, cloned the Ram Express 2. Um, I, I think I, I think I called it by something else. Um, yeah, I think uh, it, I claimed it was the Z Ram, I think. Right. And uh, he also says that the uh, AED clock will fit the Apple AE and Chinook 2C RAM expansion since they're all of the same card. Uh, AE made a 2 meg expansion for the RAM works because I think I got the number wrong on that. Um, and also a 512K one, he says. Uh, they also had two different uh, video expansions for it, the Digital Prism, uh, which is a CGA more or less, and uh, the Color Link that had dual ports, uh, one for digital, one for analog. Um, and he said, I, I, I've heard people claim to have seen a, a four meg RAM expansion, but never seen one personally. Uh, Tony Diaz says he knows how to piggyback a two meg expansion to extend the RAM works beyond three meg. Uh, so, and then people followed up with, uh, uh someone said the, the RAM works three was someone else had cloned that. Um, and there was a, I think that's actually Plowman that, that said, uh, the ROM, the heap cloned the Ramworks 3 two years ago, and now the the third batch is what has the VGA adapter. So we made all kinds of errors on the clone <laughs> cards, and we're, we apologize, and we're just not going to use names anymore. We're just going to call them the car. <laughs> that card was cloned in this card, and you have to figure out what we're talking about. Yes, thank you very much for everyone for writing in with those corrections. We do appreciate it. Uh, we are uh, we want to be accurate here, and we are just idiots with microphones. Uh, so <laughs> once again, we will fire our research department. Uh, they, uh, they it's hard to hard to hire good help these days. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this month. Uh, unless you have anything else, Mike. Uh, I do not. No. Uh, thank you once again for podcasting with me, Quinn. And uh, of course, thanks to Mike Westerfield for joining us and, and talking about uh, the ByteWorks, his time with the ByteWorks and, and the new collaboration uh, with Ken to get Opus 2 out to everyone. For sure. Yeah. And uh, I guess I'll just wrap up by mentioning uh, we also uh, do have a Patreon uh, set up now. So if you'd like to 
send a couple of bucks our way and help defer the uh, uh, hosting costs of the show, which uh, are substantial. Uh, that would be much appreciated. So uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And uh, until next month, uh, we will see you all then. Bye, everybody. Three, two, one. Make Rockets Down to Earth Rocket Science is a new book from Maker Media that shows you how to build and fly your own rockets while you learn the science behind making them fly higher and faster. Each rocket starts with detailed parts lists and step-by-step assembly instructions. The instructions show you all of the tools and techniques you need for a successful project. As you progress through the book, you'll learn how to build rockets, launchers, and trackers. Find out everything you need to know to build two-stage rockets and cluster rockets. Discover recovery techniques like helicopter recovery and rocket gliders that launch like a rocket but return as an airplane. Fly payloads like the ever-popular egg lofter. You'll even see how to install a camera on a rocket for an entirely new take on the in-flight movie. Launch pads and launch controllers for single rockets or larger pads for schools and clubs. Put mass skills to use with altitude trackers. Of course, each comes with tables or simple computer programs too. We get all ages involved with water rockets and air rockets. Blast off! Learn to use rocket simulators to design stable rockets and figure out how high and fast your rockets will fly. So whether you're a hobbyist just getting started with rocketry, a teacher or parent looking for ways to get kids interested in science and math, or an advanced rocketeer who wants a deep understanding of the principles behind rocket flight, Make Rockets will turn you into the rocket scientist you were meant to be. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. This dead air brought to you by Mike's inability to click a mouse.